everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Greenfield Podcast. In exactly nine days, one of the most important trials in animal rights history will begin. On January 20th, my friend Matt Johnson is going to trial in Wright County, Iowa, in relation to an investigation he did at Iowa Select Farms of a practice called Ventilation Shutdown. You see, back in May of 2020, when all the slaughterhouses were shutting down because of COVID-19, pig farms were massively overpopulated with pigs. They couldn't send them off to slaughter. So instead of trying to find a home for them, or even humanely euthanizing them, they did something else. They closed down all the vents in the buildings. They started pumping in hot steam and literally boiled thousands of animals alive. I kid you not. Sounds like it's something from a horror movie, but it's true. And for working with some of the employees at this company to document this practice, my friend Matt is now facing potentially eight years in prison. It's unconscionable and it makes no sense. So I'm having Matt on the podcast to talk about how he feels as we head into this trial. But I also invited my friend John Fronmeyer, who is an attorney, represented me in North Carolina to provide some insight. And while this is heavy stuff, I mean, it's intense. Uh, it could be a long time before I get to have a conversation with Matt again. We actually have some fun with this conversation, and we start talking about some marriage shenanigans that you'll have to hear to believe. And yeah, I did say marriage, as in weddings and marriages and so on. Uh, what marriages have to do with this conversation, you'll just have to hear to understand. We talk about John's family's history of prosecuting animal rights activists because his dad was the Attorney General of Oregon and went after the Animal Liberation Front. But most importantly, we talk about how all of you can and really must be involved. And, and I really do mean must, because if we're going to win not just this trial, but this movement that is seeking to protect the living creatures of this earth, human or non-human, we need all hands on deck. So hope you listen to this conversation and learn how you can be involved in what will, I am sure, be a historic trial. Without further ado, here's Matt Johnson and John Fronmeyer. So it's a new era, guys. Hey. How you all feeling? Uh, antsy, I guess. Uh, just uh, raring to go. We've been sitting here for, well, boy, coming up on like a year and a half now. But uh, more particularly, the past few months, it's like, all right, we're almost going to trial. Does it happen in August? Does it happen in December? I think it's really happening in January. So I'm ready to make, uh, I don't know, get locked up or don't get locked up or figure out what's, what it's going to be. It's happening, my friends. Oh, yeah. I think this is going to be the make or break year. The year oh, we yeah. all go to prison, or we make some we incredible change. Animal or maybe actually both. No, this maybe we all go to prison and we make the change. Maybe this is the like make or make better year. All right, because it's better. all go going to prison is 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 an okay outcome in the long scheme of things. Uh, Should be if we do it right. I'm not sure I agree. There are some benefits to the movement of some people going to prison. It's never an okay outcome, and it's a reflection of the messed up situation we're in. It's a necessary. That yes. some people Probably may outcome. have to go to prison for us to convey the message we're trying to convey. But I don't know. Anyways, I, um, I wanted to have you two on because, Johnny, we didn't get to finish our last conversation, and, and I think we should complete some of the things we talked about sure. last time. And the mat, obviously, in... It's January 1st, the new year, and in 19 days, your trial in Iowa begins, which I think is going to be one of the most important moments in animal rights history, and who better to talk about these things than my attorney in North Carolina and the defendant in this Iowa case. But I guess I want to start by, by asking you both how you're feeling about the situation, you know, because I think most people probably don't know 
John, because for the most part over the last few months and maybe even the last year, you've been acting as an attorney, not a defendant, but you actually are a defendant too. I am still a defendant. In Sonoma County, which is in many ways, you know, the Iowa case is really important, but the Sonoma County, California case that involves the largest organic poultry producer in the nation, Petaluma Foods or Purdue, yeah. is, is the case that I think is is, from my view, the most crucial strategically for this movement. They're all yeah. really important, and every one of them is an opportunity. And the Matt, obviously, you're, you're in the case that's gotten the most media attention over the last couple of years, and as people think about the pandemic, you know, Leighton Woodhouse, our good buddy, just wrote a piece about this, but we really still haven't had a reckoning as to what unfolded at slaughterhouses. And even if you only cared about public health, even if you didn't give a shit about the animals, the environment, the workers, even if you just cared about yourself, one of the stats that Leighton cites in that piece, which I think is still accurate, is I believe it's 14% of all COVID-19 cases in this country, at least about six months to a year ago. So the last time we, we tracked this carefully, stem from slaughterhouses. Wow. 14%. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right, which means I did not. I had no idea it was that high. Yeah. And by extrapolation, that means 14% of the deaths, 14% of the hospitalizations, 14% of the people have had their families and their lives destroyed. At least. Because it's like if those, so these are folks that are, this industry, don't have health care yeah. and so on. So, I mean, the death toll might be even more disproportionate, absolutely. quite frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And because, yeah, because the people are more likely to get ill and sick or people of less means. So, 14% of the cases are coming from slaughterhouses. Maybe some of the deaths yeah. are even higher from these places because this is a community that is. It's just unconscionable. It's yeah. unbelievable. And one of the things, I think, um, Zami Tufeki, or our, I was going to say our good friend, but Johnny was just reminding me not to exaggerate. So I was kidding about <laughs> Zainab Tufeki. She's not my good friend. I, I'd love for her to be my good friend. She's a sociologist at the University of North Carolina and also a columnist of the New York Times. She's very famous for making a lot of really good predictions about the pandemic. One of the things she points out is that when you look at COVID-19, both death rates and, and just vaccine trust rates, how much people trust authorities, there's a lot of debate on the left and the right about who trusts science and everyone's arguing about Fauci. We might even talk about it a little on this podcast, but the number one predictor <laughs> as to whether someone trusts the government's response to COVID-19. Do you all know what it is? Party. I mean, no, it's not party. Oh, wow. Hmm. <laughs> do you know what it is, John? I don't know. Yeah. The number one predictive factor as to whether someone trusts the government on COVID-19, whether it's vaccines, masks or anything else is whether they have health insurance. Huh? People have health insurance tend to trust the government. People don't have health insurance, absolutely do not trust the government. Right. It makes complete sense. Oh, because the government's yeah. already screwed them over. I yeah, because if you've been fucked over the last, yeah. frankly, 50 years since the inception of Medicaid and Medicare and since employment-based health care became a thing in this country, then why would you trust any of these institutions, the government or Pfizer or Moderna or your local hospital? Because you've been screwed. And, yeah. and the other factor that I think people should know is the number one factor in bankruptcy in this country. Do you know what it is? Oh, Medicare. I mean, it's medical, medical bankruptcies, yeah, that's yeah. the largest. Wow. Cost. The number one reason people, so like all the people who complain about all the lazy poor people who are homeless and on the streets, they should remember that even you, if for whatever reason you lose your job, you don't have health care, you are one bad medical bill away from being just um, like them. Well, well, yeah, one of yeah. several <laughs> things wrong with that argument. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. There's probably just also like a conformist versus non-conformist element to it as well. People with healthcare are probably more likely to want to to go along with general consensus ideas and people, you know, who eschew healthcare maybe do it less so. Although I think probably the economic concerns are overriding. Are you calling me a conformist? Oh uh, yeah. 
not. Uh, <laughs> For the record, I've got In healthcare. some ways, in some ways. I know you. <laughs> well, I could talk. I've got, I've got healthcare, but it's super cheap healthcare because I'm very poor, my friends. Nice. So, nice. Thank God for I've, covered I've California. I have healthcare courtesy of a, a wealthy spouse. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about that? <laughs> uh, it's, it's legal, right? It's like all, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's tangent, but uh, maybe a hilarious. That is a worthwhile. straight man who's married to a man. That's that's how progressive that, that I am. That is how wow. progressive he is. He's wow. so progressive, he decided, despite the fact that I'm straight, I'm still going to get married to a man. And it is the happiest marriage I've <laughs> ever come <laughs> yeah, to know of anybody. great husband. There's never I, been, and I, I will say that it has been the happiest marriage I've ever heard of. Even in the face of an upcoming divorce. Wow. wow. So that's how good that one is. Wait, you're going to get a divorce? Really? I, you it's know, very sad and tragic. Wow. Uh, really? Oh, Maddie, uh, can we do I, couples counseling or so, something? Like, um, oh, let's get, let's get, let's get your spouse on this, yeah, on the show well, and we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk it all out. Yeah, I don't know what, uh, so, Matt, so I'm this, not going to let you go, man. This is I'm my not. friend, uh, my friend Sam. Okay. To Sam, give you a little Sammy. bit of context on a very confusing little anecdote we're going on here. <laughs> um, my friend Samer. Uh, works at Google and makes uh, like something, or maybe not 10 times as much as, like five, 10 times as much <laughs> as me, way more money than me. And when you live in California, the uh, tax difference, uh, you know, one person reporting on your taxes alone versus a married couple reporting out together, there's a lot of tax savings to be had there. And this is what the legal people would refer to as tax avoidance, right? All right, for all the uh, animal ag people trying to, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to put in their next uh, memo to the FBI. Uh, yeah, totally legit. We've saved like tens of thousands of dollars over the past five years. So there I you go. I think the actual correct term for this is getting married for the money. Oh, Age old phenomenon. Men all over the world have been marrying for the money for, for centuries, and Matt's just following that tradition. But, wow. but how many times are both people getting married for the money? <laughs> so That's just like, who's, the who's the victim here? Oh, the... <laughs> IRS. That's the real. You should, you should actually check to make sure this is all kosher, but I assume it is. I, and I, well, I, I'll tell you, I have one source in the entire universe that has told me that it's kosher, and I'm sitting across from him right now. I, did I tell you this? I don't think <laughs> I ever said that. That was when this thing first happened. This thing was... Nah, we were, we were, I would it, not... I don't know shit about family law. I oh, wow. Oh, this is enlightening. Uh, I don't know how much no, we can rely is, on this right, advice. So we might have to cut this. If you hear this, you'll just know that you heard never some happened. very verified information we, that should we never love be disclosed the IRS. We only love the listeners paying our the fair podcast. share. No, we really do. We're only in, the green pill. In 2016, are going to hear this portion of the podcast. In 2016, me and Wayne and Samer, we were on our way back from an open rescue investigation somewhere in California. I can't remember which one it was, hmm. and got some time to kill on the open road. And that's where this conversation was birthed. And uh, you know, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is totally you know." So, which one would this have been? Was it Rainbow? Uh, yeah, I think it so. It was like Rainbow. one of the first. I think Rainbow was the first one I took you on because you were basically yeah. getting involved when Sammy was was kind of stepping back a little bit because he was doing his tech thing yeah. and you know programming and all that fancy stuff. Oh. But it must have been Rainbow because I think was Rainbow the first factory farm investigation you did? Yeah, the Safeway yeah. one. That um, place is fucking horrible. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think that place in Pleasant Valley were the two worst egg farms. And Rainbow, mm. Where's Pleasant Rainbow? Valley, Rainbow is, oh shit, it's on the border of San Joaquin County and another county. We never get charged in this one. I think partly because, I mean, actually, I, it's, it's really hard to understand how the prosecution decides which cases to charge. Because well, we've had some pretty terrifying cases, including VSD, right? The it, case that you're being charged under. But my, at the time, I thought it was just because the things we found were so awful. But mm -hmm. this is a, a Safeway supplier. But didn't it 
to me, the, re- the things that have been prosecuted versus not in terms of DXC open rescues, it, it's pretty much a binary of like a certain time period before and after. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's uh, biggest, that is that is the main fact. I think there's been kind of a, a coalescing of the animal agriculture industry. They've all actually, I mean, to a certain extent, they kind of solved the collective action problem because they all decided, hey, we all got to work together. Solidarity. All, you know, nobody wants to be the one to prosecute these guys, yeah. and these folks. I shouldn't say guys for the records. There's actually probably more women involved in open rescue than men, despite the yeah. fact that Objection, move to strike. Move oh, to strike. Boy. It's all men at this table. Sustained. I know. I'm sorry. Mr. Shung. Our wonderful producer is at this table, too. But oh, the people, boy. for the most Behind part, the on this podcast are, are men. But historically, it's been mostly women, so I shouldn't have said guys. But for all the, for historically, you know, I think the, the folks who, who get prosecuted have been folks after 2018 you know so there's just a timeline where they all kind of got together and said we have to start prosecuting these folks and none of us want to be the company that's in the limelight but if no one steps up to go after these folks they're going to continue doing what they're doing and the result is going to be changed things like yeah. proposition 2 and proposition 12 things like the fur ban and and that scares the bejesus out of the industry because yeah. they know their profits depend on people not knowing yeah. Well, quick. So I think it's the, the charges started coming in 2018. The investigations would have been like 2017-ish sure. going forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the first one I took you on was probably in 2016, right? Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. I think you got involved before <laughs> Paul did. And I, I, think, I think I took Paul out for the first time in late 2016. So you must have been like the middle of 2016. Yeah. Pleasant Valley was October of 2016. Because I remember and that. You had, that was... you had been out beforehand, right? Um, yeah. I... Um, Came out. Uh, no, that's wrong. Actually, I um, well, I moved out here. I moved out here in November 2016. I or I was around it in summer. Sorry, I'm falling all over myself here. In the summer of 2016, I was out here having a one of those really swanky uh, DXE internships where you sleep on the couch for a couple of months and uh, you know <laughs> uh, in the summer, which I loved. By the way, I'm being totally sarcastic. That was awesome. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that summer. I think was when we went out. Wait, sorry, 2016 or yeah, it was summer okay. 2016. So that was like I right, right, right when I met you, actually. Yep. Oh, I remember Johnny. I was I was too I wasn't too sure about this guy stealing away Wayne's attention at the animal rights conference. But I guess we'll he's redeemed himself. I oh, guess. Appreciate. Is that, that what happened? Good to know. He stole away my attention. I don't even remember. I this. I've told. <laughs> Tangents all over the place here. I'm told it, we had some lively discussions. Did you? Oh yeah. Was this 2016 or 2015? It was 2016. This was in Los Angeles yeah. at the Animal Rights National Conference. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. God, I don't even remember any of these conferences anymore. Oh, man. oh yeah. I, there have been so many. It was a good one. You debated uh, Bruce, Bruce Friedrich. Friedrich. Oh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. That was when Johnny started winning me over. He <laughs> starts chiming in. Let him speak. Let him speak. Just... Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the moderator was Michael basically. Yeah, Michael Michael Weberman, you know, good nice guy, guy. Nice I mean, guy. I, I like well the guy. meaning, but he was well totally not the right moderator because he had these strong opinions against direct action and against the things we were doing. Well, also, and he had been slated as a moderator for this panel, and he argued with me more than Bruce did. Yeah, yeah. Bruce and I agreed about a lot of well, things, and this I moderator know. is like shutting me down. Well, and everybody's the, like, "You guys are hugging. This is gross. You guys need to." Fight each other fight. at least. Wait, you're saying that? No, I, I just it was like in the room, like everybody like that room was so packed. It was yeah. like what was it like? Oh, it's definitely the most packed. versus like welfareism. Like the place was packed for like this yeah. big like thing, and that's like oh, you guys are like friends. Like, God, okay, do you remember I when that was that's... the debate in the animal rights event? Well, I kind of wish that were still see, the debate the, in the animal rights. This is the whole issue with the debate is that he, the ground rule that he laid was you yeah. can't discuss welfareism yeah. versus liberationism or yeah, yeah, you yeah, know abolition. 
right? And it's just like you can't have a real discussion if you can't even talk about that, right? Yeah. You can't because then it's just it makes no sense to have to like and dance you, around. You know why he saying. did this though? No, why? Because I think it was two or three years previously there had been a similar debate. Oh, between Gary Francione, catastrophically and, bad for the movement. Yeah, and, and the, but the key and thing Bruce is, Friedrich, right? It was Gary Francione versus Bruce was a, Friedrich. That was a good debate. Well, I it thought. might have been a good debate, and I, I think I listened to it. And it is a reasonably good debate, partly because Gary and Bruce are both really smart guys, yeah. right? But they, well, I shouldn't say they hate each other because Bruce doesn't hate Gary. Gary fucking hates everyone who's a wolf for us. He just, I mean, and he even hates like people like me who are just abolitionists, but just not. We were, we're quote unquote new welfareists. We, I was a new well, according to Gary many years ago. Saved a chicken wing. So, but but what happened was after that debate, Gary, that was kind of the inflection point for the divide back then. And we should talk about conflict because one of the subjects that Johnny and I didn't actually get to talk <laughs> about last time when we had a podcast is conflict. True, but that was like the last major conflict. Right now, we're having a big conflict in the animal rights about intersectionality, which we should talk about. But back then, the debate was about are you kind of 100% abolitionist or do you support animal welfare reforms, right? Are you someone who says, vegan or die? This is mm-hmm. Gary Francione's mantra, just veganism, veganism, veganism. And, and to me, it's like, <clears throat> those weren't even the correct, you know, polls for the movement because I just never thought veganism was equivalent to animal liberation. Animal liberation, to me, means so much more than veganism. But that was the big debate. Are you vegan or do you believe in cage-free acts? And, and immediately thereafter, Gary, because this is back in 2013, 2014, this is when the entire social media polarization thing was just starting and all the algorithms are being put in place where the most highly contentious, anxiety-riven, aggressive comment threads were blowing up on social media. And Gary started a Facebook page called The Abolitionist Approach shortly, I think it was either before, shortly before, shortly after. And Mm -hmm. that page blew up. Because if you remember in like 2013, 2014, this is kind of how DXE started too. It was very easy in the early stages to get content to go viral. And a lot of that shit was going viral about how the new welfarists are scum. They are worse than the animal abusers because they're betraying the cause. Oh. And it totally destroyed so many different organizations. Famed exaggeration tendencies that I've been hearing so much about. It's not an exaggeration. Scum? <laughs> no, I... He said scum. No, no. I, only said that honestly, scum, scum is, might, might be a nice word. Go look at what okay, Gary Francione okay. says about new welfarists. I think scum... Seriously, go look. Yeah. Let's check it. Okay, that yeah, that would be surprising. Yeah, me. I, uh, yeah and, and for the record, I'm, I'm I exaggerate I'm, much less than you. Mike. Well, <laughs> no, I, I well, that's also true. I, uh, you know, you know, someone's I'm, got a good critique of you when you're starting to feel a little sensitive about it, and I'm oh, feeling yeah. a little sensitive oh, right wow. now. Oh folks. boy. Well, look, I, oh, Crystal looks. So look, sad. I think it's. His feelings are being hurt. I would just. I guess the only thing is, I would just. This podcast. I'd hesitate to assume that Gary, like quote unquote, hates people who are okay. Hates. He's got. He feels very language. Fair, fair. Yes. He feels very strongly about the issue, and that manifests in the words that he uses to characterize people who are on the opposing side. Yeah, I do mm-hmm. think scum is a nice word for a new yeah. welfarist. I mean, so by he was like, like name-calling. Was like, oh, absolutely. Gary. Yeah, he, really? he, he absolutely says absolutely awful things about new welfarists, yeah. like just saying they're murderers. I mean, all sorts of terrible things. I, I don't know the exact terminology, but just Jesus. go check out Okay, that's, that's hateful. And, and for the record, Gary, if you're listening to this, mm-hmm. I'm sorry if this feels like a call-out of you. Get, Green just, pill. Just that, no, no, no. To, to, to steal me and Gary, I also think that Gary Francione is one of the most important philosophers in the history of the animal rights yeah. movement. I think the guy is fucking brilliant. Oh, he's oh, yeah. so he's smart. He's one of the yeah. smartest human beings I've ever met. And importantly, 
he was the person who actually introduced me to abolitionism. And, and the mm. reason I believe in animal liberation and I believe in speaking truth to power and speaking honestly about how, what we believe is because of Gary. Right. So Gary, you're an amazing dude, <laughs> but you're way too hard on Bruce because Bruce is an amazing dude too. For sure. Yeah. I, mean, I just think, you know, I think it's good to, to adopt the principle of charity when we are talking about actually everyone, frankly. And yeah. so I think it's safe to assume that underlying Gary's feelings is love for the animals. I think that's yeah. true for the vast majority of animal advocates, and but it just manifests in ways that sound very maybe not loving when disagreements arise. Yeah, honestly, it's this is an example of, of tribalism gone amok because there are a lot of people on the anti-Gary train. Oh, yeah. Who just think he's a scumbag who doesn't care about the animals. He's a narcissist. I've heard some right. awful things said about Gary Francione. And like every and here's, animal rights activist. And every animal rights activist. But here, yeah. here's what I'll say. Just go to Gary's page and see one of his posts about dogs that are up for adoption in the shelter that are oh, about yeah. to be euthanized. Yeah. And you will understand that this guy cares deeply, deeply about every individual animal who's yeah. dying. You know, he does. Yeah. And and it's it's like a lot of us. I think that in, in all of us are susceptible to this. When you're hurt and you're angry, that can be that can be a good thing if it motivates you to build something constructive, and it can be a very bad thing when you let your anger control you. And I just think that in some cases, and again, I'm not saying I'm immune to this, so I'm not condemning Gary exclusively for this phenomenon, but I do think Gary is trapped by his anger. Well, and, and of course, social, mm -hmm. you know, now, I mean, social media is like basically just as bad now, but back then we didn't even like quite understand it. So it's just like, you know, one out of a hundred comments can be contentious and that's the one that's yeah. just going to blow up and now you feel like you're pigeonholed mm -hmm. into this position and you just got to keep going down this yep you know and it just yeah. keeps forever so you just like get get trapped into your own yeah yeah i mean I'm, i think maddie's right though uh green pill him <laughs> yeah i think he's, I think he's yeah it's I like, a, it's like 3.0 <laughs> how many yeah. times you guys done it yeah we've done two debates i mean I, I didn't even like describing them as debates but they were described as debates and they were still i think i've said this before i've done a lot of things to get you know, tens of hundred thousands of views, millions of views on Facebook. We've been in the guardian, the democracy now, ABC's nightline, national television, but still the number one thing that, that drew people to our website that had, I, I don't hmm. remember exactly how many it was. It was at least tens of thousands. It might've been hundreds of thousands. This is early. It was the first debate with Gary Francione. And this is before early. We were big. Before, before we had, I don't think we had even done an open rescue at this point. I think this is like yeah. 2014 and everybody in the animal rights movement listened to this first debate because yeah. it was just, fascinating because if you listen to it honestly it's i mean it's and it's hard for, for anyone to believe this who knows me i didn't actually get to say much i know that's <laughs> what i was about to say this is, this is me. i mean that was another case the of the moderators gone wild too between yeah, between was gary a... and then it was it was our, our other good friend bob linden and it was just like you know he had like yeah, I just hit a random point in there, and it's just like, you do not hear a lot of Wayne, and then, you know, but whatever. I totally forgot Bob Linden was even at the debate, and oh, I'm, I, now I'm realizing I've got a bad history of picking moderators who are not good moderators well, for debates. you picked him? Well, I, I, I agreed to it, and I said, yeah, yeah, Bob. I mean, so Bob Linden is an interesting dude, too, because I don't even know what happened to him, but he used to have— Oh, he's around. Is he still around? He, he, he chimes in on social media every now and again, really? you know, with his uh, okay. kind of— it's, I mean, I guess it's kind of like Gary Francione. It's like he kind of seems like you have the same thing to say, which as necessarily isn't even a criticism, but it's like you they, you say the same because they're not trying to be new welfareists. They're not trying yeah. to talk about conditions or like the news of the day. It's just like, don't eat animals. Like their animals are not, you know, it's just like a very straightforward, simple message. So that's like yeah. what they always say. Anyway. Well, you know, Bob Linden lives in the Bay Area. Yeah. Oh, no, are he does his, uh like the... World Vegan Summit or whatever in That's Berkeley, right, yeah. he does some uh, get some some sweet chants going, you know. Yeah, 
No, that's right. I remember the. I don't even remember the chant. V. You shouldn't do it. <laughs> You're gonna do it. E G A N. That spells revolution. Let's say it again. V E G A N. Join the revolution. Go right. vegan, my friend. All right. We, we there's have a lot a more. We don't make fun of people. Or, or, <laughs> what? Or, there's no. That's his exact. All right. Well, we're not gonna make fun hey. of it. But Bob Bob Linden is another example of the, this debate back in the you know, the early 2010s, because he had a, then a fairly prominent vegan radio station called Go Vegan Radio that was broadcast online. It was honestly kind of like an early podcast, but it advertising, it was actually broadcast on the radio waves. Right. And he actually loved us in the early stages. And he came out to stuff and he said, finally, we have a grassroots abolitionist organization that's just going to say what oh, we think. Boy. Which is like, right. Animals are not things. Animals should not be used for any purpose. And you're just going to go out there and say it to the world honestly and openly and not be afraid of your convictions. And then he had a conversation with Gary Francione that turned him 180. And he went after us so hard. And that debate was one of the first times after Gary had yeah. basically educated him and said, hey, do you know what these people are really about? Do you Which know? Is, well, what is Gary? Well, Gary, so one of, one of Gary's critiques, and I think, I, I don't remember the exact nature of the dispute from back in 2014 or whenever it was. Was it 2014? Do you remember when it was? When we had this uh, debate? I think I it was 2014. Think, I think, yeah. Sounds right. Well, I, there, was there was definitely the there was a tw- rescue came out. That was, yeah, was January, been, there was definitely a 2015 one, but maybe that was number okay. two. Maybe it was 2015. But no, I, I just want to say, I mean, we were talking about Bob Linden. He's he's a good guy. Um, just in the spirit again of steel manning, steel manning, and assuming good faith in people. One thing about Bob that I, I really just always enjoyed was he used to always bring his little dog around, and you know, like there there are times when you see someone connected to an animal. And it feels just incredibly real and powerful. And that was definitely one time uh. where I saw how much he loved. I don't even remember his little dog's name, but he had a little dog. He used to always bring to all his protest. And I think that's where a lot of his anger came from. But yeah, I still remember back in the day when Go Vegan Radio and Bob Linden were calling out all the welfareists. And it, it was strange because in many ways I agreed with the critique. I just thought the way they were handling it was bad. But to bring it back to where we were starting this conversation about the Bruce Friedrich dispute, the reason Michael Weberman had that edict and said, we're not going to talk about welfareism mm-hmm. and abolitionism is because this debate went really south. I see. To the point there was like a faction of people who didn't come to the animal rights conference. There were actually protests against the animal rights conference within the animal rights movement because... Physical, like demonstrations in person? There might have been. Bob Linden definitely was calling for people to boycott the animal rights conference, and so was Gary. And so they decided at that point that we don't want debates anymore. And, and I thought that was a disastrous mistake. I think you need yeah. debates. I think you should do the opposite. Like we should talk more about it and let's yeah. try and bring these people back together. Yeah, and inoculate the movement against the devastating psychological you know, right. consequences of conflict that only erupts occasionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the other thing you have to do is, and I think this is something I've learned, I mean, about radical candor and disagreement, everyone's got to come into the debate with the basic assumptions of good faith, yeah. right? And if you can have a very fierce debate, to this day... I, I will say this, and I'll say this in, until the day that I die. Bruce Friedrich is one of the best human beings on this planet and one of the best human beings the animal rights movement has ever had. Mm-hmm. And I say this despite the fact that I disagree with him almost 180 degrees on some of the most important strategic issues in the movement. But on a personal level, he's an incredibly good person. And on a strategic level, there's a lot of things we agree on. And a lot of things he's doing, I mean, 
GFI is one of his organization oh, yeah. is one of the few organizations I've donated to in the last couple of years. I donated to a lot of organizations back when I had money, but now I'm dirt poor and indigent and had to appeal for a public defender in my North Carolina appeal because I've given all my money away. But back when I had money, I, GFI was actually one of the organizations I have given some money to um, beyond DXC, obviously. So I think Michael just didn't understand the context in what we could achieve from a good faith disagreement. So anyways, mm -hmm. But you were riled up, huh? Uh, did you oh, know I was friends with Bruce? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I did. You no, I, 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 I just figured that was like the way that the, the kind of room was responding. Um, but uh, yeah, that was... Um, <clears throat> it's it's weird. It, like, it doesn't even... Like, it seems like that debate doesn't exist anymore, hardly. And I think maybe it's because communications... You know, it, it, it's like what I was saying a minute ago. It's like there's only so much you can say about like abolitionism, like stop doing this, please. <laughs> let's, let's not do this ever again. And let's move forward as a society and like go vegan and you're done talking. And so, cause I think that's anyway, I don't know how deep we're going to actually get into the substance of that debate, but it just becomes like every animal rights group. Now, I guess you could, you know, would fit into the new welfare's category because they talk about conditions. They talk about specific practices, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So I guess we, that side prevailed. Yeah, and of. I, well, kind of, but I just want to make clear because we're using a lot of jargon that, yeah. frankly, even animal rights activists who are a little newer to the movement aren't going to remember these terminology. So I just want to broaden the point and as follows that in every movement, there's always a debate between those who pursue direct action and have a very ambitious vision as to what sort of world we want to create and want to be open about that. And people are pursuing more incremental change and think it's dangerous and counterproductive to talk about our true beliefs. So anyways, we're talking about the animal rights conference and I, what, I don't even remember what happened when we got interrupted. What were, we, were you saying something, John? Oh, uh, was... we were, no, we were just talking about Bruce and uh, Gary and, oh, just the, re the reasons that the, the ground rule existed down. and how we thought that was yeah. probably counterproductive. Well, so can we just maybe give people a little bit of context here? So new welfareism, if you define, so basically, you know, there's, as, as Wayne was kind of getting into there, the, you know, welfareism would pretty straightforward, improved, you advocate for improved welfare conditions of animals, abolitionism, you say, stop using animals altogether, new welfareism, which is like kind of all the animal rights movements, basically in some fashion, almost all of them these days, um, would be, advocating for welfare improvements as a step towards your ultimate goal of animal personhood, animal liberation. Cetera, and it became like a pejorative term. The term was invented yeah. by Gary Francione to attack the new welfareists or who he described as new welfareists because he said, this is no different than the old welfareists who just want to modify the way we're exploiting and torturing animals and don't actually believe that we should stop using them. And it's, it's kind of the, the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? They're, the same as the old school people. And, and mm -hmm. for those who don't have the historical context, the animal rights movement used to be a movement that didn't actually care that much about farm animals at all. So there's studies from the 1990s at the Animal Rights Conference showing, I think in 1993 and 1998, there were these two surveys done showing that in 1993, I think it was maybe less than 20%, less than 30% of people were vegetarian and almost no one cared at all about farm animals. By 1998, that had increased, but it was still, I think, a majority of people we're not vegetarian. And, and now it's completely different. So the abolitionists have been, at least with respect to dietary preferences within the movement, have been incredibly successful at turning veganism and vegetarianism into the norm in the animal rights movement, which may or may not be a good thing. And this yeah. is one of the points mm -hmm. I made in that article, Boycott Veganism, that we talked about a little bit in the last podcast, right. I think, which 
I don't encourage you to read. <laughs> and I won't really? succeed. You know, when I tell people don't read this, then oh, they definitely yeah. go and read it. Uh, yeah, that's like a great, so maybe I should say, go read it, go read it. Yeah. It's really boring and long. It's a really academic article. Oh, that man. You'll have a lot of fun reading if you like reading academic articles. John and I are going to go yeah. our whole lives talking about a brilliant piece <laughs> that, that how brilliant it was that Wayne wrote it. And Wayne is going to be forever running, fleeing, telling us to stop. Yeah. Talking. I wrote that in 2007 before there even was, I mean, there was, there was a debate about abolition and welfare, but it, wasn't raging the way it started raging in I'd say the mid 210s. And the, this the really unfortunate thing about this debate is I think it's a legitimate debate that became completely toxic. Both because as we found in a lot of our investigations the actual welfare improvements from so-called new welfareism I think and I think there's a lot of evidence to show this are much less significant than the animal rights movement was claiming. And certainly than the animal industry was claiming. Because mm-hmm. once the animal industry co-opted animal welfare, that's when it became a complete marketing game. It wasn't about actually improving the condition for animals. It was completely about eking every cent you could out of consumers, which is why it was, I mean, it was mm-hmm. seriously fucked up, some of the stuff that was happening here. Like, just outright lies. Mm-hmm. But more, more generally, I mean, there, there's also debate about strategy in the movement. You know, is it, is it the case that you should only focus on incremental reforms in your messaging? Is it the case that most people are going to be too scared off by your radicalism when you talk about animals as persons and not property? When you talk sure. about a vision of the world where no animals harm in movies and entertainment, in laboratories and fur farms, or in factory farms and slaughterhouses. And I think one of the reasons that debate is important is because the animal rights movement, maybe more than any movement I've been a part of over the last 30 years, and I've been a part of a lot of them, has always been captured by incrementalism. There's, there's no one who's really fought for or believed in the big vision strategy. And when you look historically at movements, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't say, I have incremental reforms. He said, I have a dream. Evan Wilson did not say, hey, can you, can you beat us up a little bit less? You know, I'm gay and I'd prefer maybe instead of killing me, you can just fire me, you know, for my job. He said, no, my belief is equality. My, my dream is equality. And he, he did that in 1983. So and I just think that history shows very, very clearly, it's not that you don't need incremental reforms. I've, I've been hugely supportive, and I think we've worked on a lot of incremental reforms. I mean, even ending VSD, that is, in many ways, I mean, Gary Francione would condemn you for being a new welfareist. Why do you give a shit about VSD, ventilation shutdown? I mean, say they don't boil the animals alive. They're still going to slaughter them. Mm-hmm. So what's the big deal, Matt? Come on, aren't you an abolitionist? And so, <laughs> That'd but, be a tough one, but yeah. we're not welfareists <laughs> just because we're focusing on incremental reforms as long as we have that big long-term vision. And that vision is a virtue of the movement, not a vice. I've always felt this right. way. And that debate yeah. just wasn't being had. Yeah. And I tried making that point to Gary over Facebook and he blocked me. Nice. So <laughs> well done, what Gary. can you do? Well, it, it, I mean, I think, you know, if you could you probably explain a little more eloquently than I could about the, the movement being co-opted because I mean, animal rights activists inclination is to agree with you. Like, yeah, I don't want to like, I don't want to like half acid and I don't want to like kind of like not be authentic about what I'm saying. So like they would want to do that. And yet it's, it's not, and it has, you know, some reasons I think are more valid than others. And some are kind of defensive and it kind of gets into the like, um, you know, so-called nonprofit industrial complex, but I don't know if you want to just talk about that. I think there's two types of co-opting that occur in every movement, not just the animal rights movement. One is the type of co-opting that is corrupt and that most people think of when they think of a movement being co-opted, which is 
money is changing hands and it kind of creates incentives that are at a minimum misguided and possibly just outright corrupt. And, and this is true of the animal rights movement. There is probably at least millions of dollars being funneled in the animal rights movement oh, that's by a lot known, of, yeah. of wealthy, powerful people, including people affiliated with companies like Whole Foods, yeah. you know? So, and, and I, I don't know exactly how much money because a lot of this isn't public disclosure, but it's common knowledge among insiders that some of these folks, the John Mackey types, you know, John sea Mackey World. is on the board of directors of Humane Society of the United States. SeaWorld and HSUS had this deal. And again, I'm not condemning HSUS. I'm not even saying in all cases they shouldn't take the money. Mm-hmm. Maybe they should take the money. But I think that money has to come with a lot of transparency and accountability, or it can corrupt your incentives in very bad ways. Well, so this is this is co-opting version one. And, well, and just a real quick note on that, too, is that the money often will come explicitly with, no, you don't talk about this. There is no transparency, you know. Uh, and so, like, this is why we kind of hear through things through the grapevines. We kind of speculate. We have an idea, but we don't have hard facts uh, because what they're paying for is for it to be hush hush. You know, in, you know, a lot of what they're paying for. Yeah, and we've seen this in some context with the media too. And I don't yeah. think we have to go into specific details, but there, there have definitely been situations like that that have come up because it's just the amount of influence that money has, even in so-called, you know, objective journalism, is kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah, and. I don't want to even name examples, but I, I will say around the time that we released our initial investigation of Whole Foods in 2015, which is the first investigations of a Whole Foods high welfare farm. In fact, I think it was, frankly, the first investigation of like a high welfare farm period because high welfare farms really started in the mid 2000s at the University of Chicago Law School. I was part of it at the very beginning when Wayne Pacelli and and John Mackey and Peter Singer all came out for this big symposium that one of my mentors, Cass Sunstein, organized. That was the start of the big animal welfare marketing movement. And, and the products started coming on shelves by like the late aughts and early 210s. And, and no one had really looked into it and everyone really bought into it, including in the animal rights movement. And, you know, we had done the first investigation in 2015. Almost literally, I think it was even the same month, if not a month before, Whole Foods had just announced, I think, the largest advertising buy in the history of the New York Times and a bunch of other major periodicals. They were going to, make this huge, I think it was tens of millions of dollars. I don't remember the exact buy amount, but it was, it was definitely in the millions. I don't remember if it was tens of millions or millions or whatever it was, but there was media attention just around the fact that they were buying media. Mm. And it's just, it's really hard for an objective journalistic institution. I don't care how high your character is. When, when your economic survival Mm -hmm. depends on a particular customer's money, it is going to be very hard for you to go after the customer for the wrongdoing. It's just, it's in the nature of, and, and frankly, there's like some good and decent reasons for that. If someone's giving you money and you turn around and attack them, that's kind of just a shitty thing to do. You don't do that to your friend. Your friend lends you yeah, $500,000 to buy a home and then you, sh- you, you shit talk them. That's like a shitty know, thing to do. You might hurt Whole Foods' feelings. And Whole Foods, this legal person is, you <laughs> You're know. obviously joking, but there's, there's individual relationships <laughs> yeah, at issue, know. you know? So there's like, there's an individual sure. on the other side of that transaction you probably have a good relationship with. That's why you struck the deal. That's, and, and this person just yeah, gave you millions of bucks. And you're going to turn around and publish a story condemning them? So unsurprisingly to me, and, and again, I don't, I, I want to talk about the second form of co-opting because I think it's the most more insidious form of co-opting in a moment. But even this form of co-opting where money is changing hands, it's not necessarily insidious because it's just, it's like basic de- human decency and reciprocity. When someone gives you that much money, you don't talk shit about them. 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, and honestly, like, I think I mean, there's decency is a heck of a word to throw on there, but <laughs> it comes from a place of intended decency, well, but it's pretty gross. But the problem you know? is with media that is dependent on that sort of money to survive. Mm-hmm. I don't blame the individuals at all, because if you're making money from these folks and then you talk shit about them, that's that is like a, a violation of human reciprocity. It, we should not have a media system where people are dependent on that money in the first well, place. And, 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 Let's and take that money out orgs, of it. Same animal rights organizations that are dependent on that kind of money. And that's Absolutely. what, you know, with. What I'd say about but DXE, and this isn't even you know this is just a, a blessing or you know this is just a, a very fortunate privileged position that we're in in a sense that we we're not taking corporate money uh, we don't need to take corporate money we have people who support us and we have um, you know on an individual level nobody's making any money that amounts to anything so that 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 you know it's much easier you know like we don't we don't run into those conflicts basically we don't have to so it's not like we're just like morally upstanding like we just like are above it. You know, no, we just don't run into those conflicts at all. We run into plenty of other conflicts, but we you don't know the other those. campaign I'm aware of that didn't take any corporate money. Ooh. Uh, at least you <laughs> haven't been aware of it, yeah. So I ran for mayor in 2020. We were to promise oh, to not take God. corporate money, and that went pretty well. Actually, it did go pretty well in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, people we like lost, it. was probably it was, our best talking point. Yeah, yeah. It was a good well, and then and then our people and then appreciated our, it. Our, and then they started attacking me for being a cult leader, and it all fell apart. And then, well, <laughs> oh, then, and then the, the current mayor just like found twenty five thousand dollars under his pillow that he had, and he just yeah, started. Yeah. Th- I don't know how much money it was. Don't say. I think it was like twenty thousand. Yeah, uh, I think it was like twenty grand. Wasn't it? Was it? It was like fifteen or something. But anyway, okay. Yeah, we still don't. Well, whatever. It's history. All right. Anyways, we should. Type I two. want to go back to our original question, which is how are you all feeling about. Oh, do you want to go to the charges? type two of the. But uh, yeah, there's. I'll just briefly know. say right. the, the second type of co opting, <laughs> which is, which is, I think the more dangerous type, doesn't actually have to do with monetary incentives. It's just about. It's about perception, right? It's about. Because human beings are social animals. You want to fit in. And it's. it's Examples of this would be when Ezra Klein or my mentor in law school, Cass Sunstein, talk about how hard it is to be an animal rights activist, that even just saying your truth when your truth is something that very few people have even thought of and mm-hmm. most people instinctively think is outside of the realm of what's acceptable and mainstream is incredibly difficult. And so you get co-opted to them by the mainstream culture. And, and this happens because of social pressure. It happens because if you're a journalist or a law professor, if you all remember, I don't know if you all listen to the podcast I have Justin Marceau, but mm-hmm. Justin Marceau talked about how hard it is to be a law professor who writes about animal stuff. You know, huh, really? I should are, check that out. Are you not listening to the Green Book uh, Podcast? Oh, boy. I just WT. My, I just yeah. outed myself. Like, he just outed himself. <laughs> like, why is anyone listening to this podcast when even one of my best friends, Aww. someone who I've had on the podcast now twice, Aww. more than anyone, John has been on this boy. podcast more than anyone in the history of the Green Book Podcast. I, I and still, he did not okay. listen to the I Justin still Marcel probably, have li- of all the podcasts that I've listened to, Green Pill probably makes up the majority. Right, so, mm. if that makes you feel better. Does that mean you listen no. to yours and that's it? <laughs> <laughs> you listened to one episode. No, no, but I, I talked to Justin Marceau and he talked about how hard it was, even as being, you know, this is a guy who graduated with honors from Harvard Law School. He was doing incredible stuff. He's written articles in the Harvard Law Review, um, which have featured Matt Johnson's work. You know, shout out to Matt for all the work you did that led Justin to be able to write about VSD and, and how the criminalization of animal cruelty is, is really not the solution. What we have to the, do is... Yeah. yeah a, but, a lot of things we're talking about now about the... Uh, uh, co-opting of you know, these organizations that don't say anything about it when, yeah. <laughs> uh, when something like VSD is happening. But uh, anyway. Yeah, the, the articles... What is the title of the article in the Harvard Law? Palliative Law. Yeah, Palliative Animal Law. Palliative. 
go read that article. If you care about animal rights, if you care about criminal justice, because it's, it's just an incredibly powerful article that explains why incarceration and really just punishment in general is not the right approach to criminal justice. It just isn't. Doesn't work. Punishment of individual bad deeds. Yes. That's what it, yeah. So the idea that you punish people and you stop crime, right? The, the old mantra within animal law that Justin talks about in this piece is abuse an animal, go to jail. And that just doesn't work. Right. Like, but you should we, still punish corporations in ways, you know. Corporate, that, corporate yeah. responsibility is very different. Right. Just right? because yeah. Part of the reason it's different is because when you hold a corporation criminally responsible, it's more about restorative justice for all of us. It's recognizing the collective mm. responsibility we have because a corporation is an agglomeration of a bunch of individuals who've collectively decided we're going to do things a certain way. We're going to, I mean, that's literally, that's what a corporate charter is. I mean, John and I can tell you yeah. this is what we did. It's like a bunch of people get together and they say, here's what we're going to do together. And when you hold a corporation responsible, it's a recognition that this is a systemic issue. Right. Mm-hmm. This is about our collective norms. It's not that yep. you know any one person who hurts the animal is a bad individual person. It's about our collective responsibility to build policies and systems that help everybody, including the animals. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. I mean, I think I don't know that you really always look at corporations as like conglomerations of people because, I mean, the co- corporate entity is just like an entry in like a state database and so you can a single person can create a whole bunch of different corporations and play shell games and use them to further their own individual interests but i agree with you on in a general level like when we're talking about like all of animal ag like there has to be some like i think that is a place where we do need restorative justice and where the idea you know we don't come at this from the position of we want people to go to prison even people who want us to go to prison like that's not what we want for them, what we want is justice for the animals, and we, and we want change that's ultimately beneficial for them, too. Yeah. All right. Think that's fair? I think that's fair. So anyways, that was anyways. a very long tangent away from the initial question, which is, mm-hmm. how are you all feeling? How are you feeling about... Um, I definitely want to talk about your family's history. Sure, yeah. Maybe I'll start with John. So how are you feeling about facing Austin, Sonoma County, especially in light of your family's history? Well, well, I, I guess just the basic question of how I feel, I, I feel a lot of gratitude toward Mr. Mr. Maddie right here. I just think it's very... Mr. Maddie. Mr. Maddie, wow. Mr. Johnson. That is a yeah. nice combination I, of formal uh, and informal. Oh, yeah. Mr. Maddie. <laughs> yeah, that's how I go. <laughs> I, but yeah, I just think it takes, it's, you know, it's very, it's very brave. Maddie's a good activist, really leads by example and uh and is willing to face consequences you know for for himself and so i, I think that's so really what about your about, case yeah well it's interesting because maddie was like oh you know it's been a year and a half for vsd but that's like that's like <laughs> yeah. lightning fast for <laughs> animal rights sonoma. cases because yeah. we're going on this is now our fourth year in sonoma county and we even had a, a preliminary hearing yet is it four Holy yeah it crap. was it is four years yeah because the charges came down after the uh, McCoy's Poultry Services action September in September of 2018. Yeah, so we so we're, we're in year four. Uh, and I guess the first action was uh, May, May of, of 2018. 2018. So yeah, we are in our fourth year since then with no prelim. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I feel, I, I definitely feel a lot of anger about that situation because I just feel like they, like, the other side, Bob Wainer, Jill Ravitch, like they know that these we, are the prosecutors. These are the prosecutors. Mm-hmm. They know that we have a legitimate point. Like, and you can't look at what the photos we took and the videos and yeah. say there's no animal cruelty here. So clearly they know. And like they're prosecuting because 
they don't want us to do, they, they don't want to actually deal with the underlying issue, which is animal cruelty. And so the next easiest thing to do is just prosecute the people who are quote unquote causing the problem. Mm-hmm. But you and I, we, we were not causing the problem. The fact that there was animal cruelty that was happening, that is the source of the problem. And we're, we're people who are acting out of our conscience to do something about it. And so I get the institutional incentives, but I'm just fucking pissed because like all these animals are suffering and those people should be protecting them. They should be doing something about it. And they're not. They're protecting the exploiters. They're enablers. Like Bob Wehner is an enabler of animal cruelty. Jill Ravage is an enabler of animal cruelty. Jess Lee, whatever her last name is, like these people are enablers and they need to know it. They need to they need other people to tell them you are enabling animal cruelty. So yeah, I'm mad. Like, yeah. and I, I want to face them down in court. I look forward to it. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. They might, they might even win. They might get, they might get a conviction. That, but that doesn't matter. Like, winning in court doesn't mean that you're right. Like, mm-hmm. it just means that the system is designed to, to further your agenda, yeah. which is that just that's just how animal exploitation works. Like, they've capped. Like, they have the sheriffs on their side. Like, they have the ag committees and the legislatures on their side. They have all the advantages. Like an anim- non-human animals, like probably the most important thing to know is that non-human animals don't vote. Like they're totally excluded from our democratic process, mm-hmm. right? And they could, they could play a role in our democracy. You could have committees and legislatures that have a chart that like have this chartered mission of representing the interests of animals. You could have entire legislatures that serve that purpose, and we should because if we did. Then, for example, like we wouldn't be destroying old growth forests. We wouldn't just be letting logging companies do whatever they want because there'd be a system in place to say, look, like there are deer here, there are owls here, there are rabbits, there's all this wildlife, and you're destroying their homes. And and yet you're we're pretending like it's only the logging companies and the environmentalists who matter in the public arena, but it's not. Like there's the most important interest is being totally excluded. And like the animals in Sunrise Farms, the animals at McCoy's Poultry Services, like the animals at Reichart Duck Farm, those are the three locations we did these actions in that we're being charged for. Like they're all members of our society. Like they're all like they're all persons in our in in the world, but we just live with this democratic system that totally excludes their interests. So, yeah, and I think most people. Sorry, that was a long this. rant. It was, but. it was great. I mean, I agree that hundred percent. And I think most people, when they see an individual animal, they want our political system to take into account that animal's interests. So yeah, the classic example. This is a polar bear starving to death. I mean, these videos that are coming out over the last couple of years, mostly because polar bears. For those of you who don't know, it's just sad, but one of many sad truths about our world, they have now been committed to extinction. Polar bears will be gone from the wild completely, unless mm-hmm. we make reverse course dramatically in the next few years. They're going to be gone from the wild completely. They'll just be in captivity, and they'll probably die eventually out, even in Zeus. But when most people see an individual polar bear languishing, and there's like this really grim video that National Geographic posted a couple of years ago of a polar bear that's like just bone thin, starving to death, just eating garbage. You see him digging around, and not... Not like food garbage. I mean like plastic and shoes and just wow. like digging around in garbage or stuff like that. I don't remember the exact details. People see that and say, and you ask them, should this individual being's interests be accounted for in our political system in yeah. some meaningful way? Do their intrinsic interests, meaning even if no one even knows that this polar bear exists, just the fact that a polar bear is out there starving to death, eating garbage because of all the devastation we're, wreak- we're wreaking on this planet should that be taken into consideration, the most cold-hearted conservative hunter would almost 
certainly say yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is fucked up. Yeah. I don't like saying this. And even if I don't like it, even independently of what I like, and this is this is part of the research I did 15 years ago and published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. Like one of the we did studies showing that, or we did analysis showing that even if you just took into account what people already believe about animals, we need to be making a massive, massive shift in the way we operate things. Because even as society's current preferences are constituted, people care about animals. They're willing to pay for animals to be protected. They're willing to prevent extinctions and sacrifice themselves. But they have to know yeah. about it. They have yeah. to know about it. And this is yeah. this is where the conversation we had last time about gagging people in court, gagging people yeah. like Matt from exposing yeah. with laws like the ag gag law you've been charged Prosecutors under. Prosecutors always do that. That's yeah, just do. like the classic playbook is prevent the jury from learning the, the truth. truth. If they learn the truth, then they know that they're going to lose. Yeah. Maybe not in that particular case, but like over the long term. So they have to exclude all the evidence of animal cruelty. And so do you think your dad Shaq. did this? Your yeah, dad did my dad this, right? did do it. So tell, wait, tell us about this because we, we mentioned yeah. this in the last podcast, but for those of you who don't know or didn't listen to the last podcast, Johnny mentioned something that I knew about him that mm-hmm. most people probably don't know about him, which is that your dad was a very famous politician, very True. influential lawyer in the state of Oregon. He was the attorney general of the state. True. And he prosecuted one of the early animal liberation front cases. Yeah. So can you just tell us about that a little bit and so folks have that backdrop? Because I think it's an interesting sure. journey for you and your family to go from your dad prosecuting animal rights activists to you being charged as an animal sure. rights activist. Sure, sure. Well, funnily enough, I, I didn't even know about this until relatively recently because I was doing research on the necessity defense oh, seriously? for animals. Huh. And, uh, and I came across this case, uh, you know, State of Oregon versus Roger Trone. But this was a, an animal liberation front case in the 1980s that involved a break-in at a neuroscience lab at the University of Oregon where... The, the researchers were doing really grisly testing on animals. And I, I don't know all the details, but I know that Ro- Roger Trone was one of the people who was involved. And they took a number of animals out. I think rabbits, maybe even, I think they even took primates out too. And actually, interestingly, I, I worked in this same lab. Like I, I spent a couple summers doing wow. zebrafish research on my, my family's genetic disease and which was part of the and it was this was in the neuroscience department at the university of oregon and uh, and they still do well at least this was back in 2005 and 2006 but even at that time they were still doing primate research and i because a friend of mine told me about it i didn't even know because nobody talked about it and there was very much like a hush hush atmosphere amongst my lab about animal research and i didn't and it was because of this prior experience they had with the alf so what did Roger do? Well, what did I, Roger Trone do? They well, I mean, it was he it just was, broke in. It was a standard ALF action. Yeah, they broke in and they took animals out, and I think they destroyed some equipment, and then they spray painted some, an animal liberationist message. And what were they doing to the primates? Do you remember the details? Like what, what motivated uh, I did him read to about do this. It, they did talk about it in. They talked extensively actually in the briefs about about what the what the specific research was. I can't totally remember exactly what it was. Yeah. But there, yeah, I mean there was just there was a professor at the U of O who was doing some kind I think it might have been addiction research. Wow. Maybe I'm confusing that with uh, Minnesota. Um, learning about the one of the early the cases that got the Shack folks involved, but anyway, uh, but you know he was discovered. I think it was a, a veterinarian who treated a rabbit who who turned him in eventually. 
Wow, and a vet turned him in. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, motherfucker. Um, I know it's rough, <laughs> and uh, um, and so my dad's office eventually got involved because they tried to Trone tried to use a necessity defense, and the state objected, and then the attorney general's office got involved and i i don't know how much so explain what necessity defense is for folks who yeah don't know so what necessity means. defense is just this common law doctrine that says in essence that every one of us is justified not just excused mm-hmm. not like you know oh this was a bad thing but we kind of we get it uh that this is something a normal person would do but actually justified in other words this is a this is a positive thing we want to encourage people to do this um, to, to break a law to prevent some kind of greater evil from happening, provided that we've used legal means first to, to try to rectify the harm. Or attempted if, to use. Attempted to use, right, yeah. if, if at all possible. So that's what, that's what necessity defense that's what the necessity defense says. So Roger necessity. tries to bring this defense, and what does your dad do? He, he shuts it down? The, the state shut it down, and they were successful, unfortunately. And the, the gist of the argument was it's, it's like what all prosecutors say and when you're looking at like the climate, uh, climate justice context or the animal rights context. These are good people and they have good intentions. I'm speaking condescendingly because I, I do feel very condescending. Like yeah. I, I have a condescending attitude about prosecutors who say this, but they just they didn't go about it the right, right way. way. Yeah, they yeah. should have done something different. And the case that my dad's uh, well, that the state of Oregon's again. I don't know how much my dad really personally worked on this, or if it was something. But he certainly signed off on it. Yeah, you said his name was like his name the, was on the brief. His, he yeah, was the it was his office. He was yeah. the attorney. Of, his office was, was the, the attorney, attorney of record, record. and yeah. and they cited this other case. It was called like State v. Hund, which was uh, it was a case against environmental activists who had tried to like block a logging truck in Oregon in the 1980s and that just stood for the proposition that basically like having good intentions is not enough and these people should have been engaging in the democratic process in order to vindicate their interests instead of resorting to quote-unquote illegal means Hmm. and again I I feel that like whether you're talking about people blocking logging trucks or whether you're talking about people who are liberating animals from horrible abuse, like the point is the same that the democratic, again, what I said about the democratic process, it's not a fair democratic process. And so I think there's so much disingenuousness when, uh, when prosecutors tried to bring this argument because they know, or they should know that the deck is stacked in, in their favor and in the industry's favor and so when you're saying oh these people should have just done something different like that's just a smoke screen it's not a legitimate argument and it's not just that it's an unfair democratic process it's an unfair judicial process too because once you've excluded the necessity defense yeah the defendant doesn't have or at least often will not have the right to bring in evidence as to why they did what they did right and and you're just sitting there hearing this guy broke into a lab and smashed up a bunch of stuff and took a bunch of animals and you don't yeah you don't get to hear about the cruelty the animals were being we're being yeah. exploited with the, 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 the cries of the animals, the right. diseases, the number of animals that are dying in the facility, all that gets thrown out. Yeah. And all you hear is this guy broke into a lab, smashed a bunch of stuff up, took the animals right. out. It's like, that's messed up. Yeah. You know, even, if you don't hear at all about why you did what you did and what was motivating you, then you got nothing. Right. And so, and right. And so the prosecutors, they're, they're part of this system. They're making it worse for the animals. They're making yeah. it worse for the environment when they try to do stuff like, block the necessity defense. They're stacking the deck 
They're using the tools that they already have to stack the deck even more against animals in the environment. And that's just what I find so morally reprehensible yeah. is that they're hurting animals when they do this and they're hurting the environment and they're hurting themselves by doing that. They're hurting their own kids. Yeah. Like we need old growth forests. Like we need an environment to breathe. We're going to suffocate if we continue annihilating the biosphere at the rate that we're doing it. And the ones who are going to pay the price first are the non-human animals, like mm -hmm. whose environments are being annihilated. Because you know, a lot of people, we talk about how you know, climate change, global warming will affect people in the global south first, the worst, mm -hmm. right? It's the people who are already in vulnerable situations. But even before we affect any human beings at all, it's like the bristol mouth fish. Yeah. Like they're getting it the worst. Mm -hmm. It's the animals who are suffering the most. So, and I, I think prosecutors, like, I don't mean to demonize prosecutors. I love my, I loved my dad. Like yeah. my dad was a, a great, great Your human Your dad being. was a great dude. Yeah, I, he was. I, I and he was, he was a fantastic lawyer. He was, yeah. a, he was Smart. like, I mean, I really think he was one of the best prosecutors ever just based on record. Like, <laughs> for the, yeah, for the wrong causes. Yeah. Like that's the sad part. Yeah, like is drug he was, criminalization. He, he, was, and... he, he was not always on the right side. Like when yeah. we're talking about drugs and when we're talking about animals, and I think in some ways with like the Rajneesh, like yeah. the prosecuting Osho's cult, yeah. that's a whole other discussion. Wild, wild country. Yeah. yeah, but he was not always on the right side, which is just really unfortunate. But I think a lot of prosecutors, they just, they need to think about this stuff and they mm -hmm. need to say, how can I be of service, not just to human beings, not just to the people who are voting and giving money, but the people who are, the, the people, which includes non-humans, who are really suffering and who really need my advocacy. So prosecutors, be advocates for them. Yeah. <laughs> be advocates for the animals. Even, even when your state laws exclude livestock from animal cruelty exemptions, like that should be your sign that something's wrong yeah. with this system. So be on the side of the animals. Help the animals. That's my message to prosecutors. I think it's a basic principle of integrity that yeah. anytime you have to exclude one side of a debate yeah. because you just think it's unacceptable and that perspective can't be aired mm -hmm. at all. It's a sign of the weakness of your perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. So when the, exactly. the prosecutors say we have to exclude all this evidence, we can't allow these arguments. That's yeah. pretty telling. And, and yeah. I think that's oh, true so of, telling. In, in pretty much all contexts. I think this is one of the reasons why I really right. do believe in radical transparency. Cause I think if we're frankly, even just for our sake as activists, as an organization, if we're not open to basically anything, we will not become stronger ourselves. We will right. not understand the real impact of our arguments. Right. right. You hear so. that, Janice McCannis and Sean Rays? Like, <laughs> if you feel good about what and Mr. Smith Coro as well, Mr. Coro, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you Eric feel Simon's good about what Smithfield and ISF are doing, if you can stand by it, then let the defendants talk about it. Yeah. And let the now. jury make the call. Like that's how our democratic process that should work. That's how our court process should work. I'm with you, my friend. You know, I wonder how much of the people, because what happens, I mean, you see people, whether it's prosecutors or whether it's veterinarians or um, police officers, I think that, you know, people are good people generally, and they start off in the process and they start getting involved, you know, going to school and whatever, and you sort of have, have, a little bit naive ideas about the system and how the system is going to work. And then once you've built your whole life around it and invested a bunch of money and went to school and so on, then you kind of like start to realize what's going on there. And then you're kind of trapped in it. And I got a lot of examples of this. Um, you know, when we, 
um, with ventilation shutdown in, uh, in, in Grundy County, Iowa. So that's separate from where the charges are now. I won't go into that, but the actual recording of ventilation shutdown, we had interactions with this, um, uh, sheriff's deputy who actually is now elected as the actual sheriff of the County. And wow. he, um, yeah, no, no, nobody even ran against him. He's, he's calling the shots around there. Um, he was genuinely like clueless. He seemed like authentically, um, defending what's happening to those animals with ventilation shutdown. He pulled us over. He was hassling us. He, you know, we had a few different runs in with him. He's still like a year later, almost after the charges have been dismissed over there. They still have like hundreds of dollars for the camera equipment, all sorts of wild stuff. But anyways, he was like authentically defending it. And he was like, well, if you have, you know, it's like, well, what's going on there? We, you know, it, uh, you know, he just seemed kind of curious about it in the first time, but then that quickly changed. And it was, and, and it, you know, at the end of the day, long story short, it was clear that they didn't even entertain, you know, we sent them legal opinions from law scholar, from a law scholar, from a veterinarian. We sent them our, our video. We sent them this opinion that, that explains exactly how this is against the law. And at the end of the day, all the sheriff said was, well, the state veterinarian said it's okay. And so that's it. Um, which there's a million things wrong with that argument. Um, and another quick example along the same lines is, um, and I won't reveal this person's identity, but, um, we have, uh, through some, people in this room that are connected with some other people in this room. We have a um, pre-veterinary student at a, a agricultural school who worked for a, um, a big pork producer and, and is, it came to us and talked to us and she's very conflicted. Um, and that's why she's talking to us, but she still is like a few years in, I mean, how many tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars has she invested in, you know, going down the path of being like a pig veterinarian. And so it's like, what do you do in those scenarios? And it's simple. I mean, yeah, if you're Joe Ravitch or Sean Reyes or whoever, like, sure, you can like completely like throw your career in the toilet and do the right thing, you know, but the system is, you know, it just at every level, the system is just like pushing in the opposite direction for the status quo. I think that's true of all of us though. All of us are kind of invested in this system, just our way of life. And the, but the key thing to note is, and this is, we often say this about veganism, and it is true of veganism, that it's actually not as big of a shift as you think, that giving up your old patterns right. is not that big of a deal. Like having the Beyond Burger instead of the Burger McDonald's is not going to devastate the rest of your life. You, you get acclimated to the new patterns. And I think the hard thing is in all these contexts, people inside the system don't see how easy it is to get out of it. Yeah. And if they did, they would. But I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen this in so many different contexts. I, I think that's true of a lot of animal rights activists. I, I mean, even going back to the new welfare debate, I think th one of the reasons I didn't like what Gary was saying about the so-called new welfare is I, he saw it as a moral flaw, that it was a sign that they were evil. And just as many people might see someone as a veterinarian, for example, a state vet of Iowa signing off on VSD, or Bob Wainer, the prosecutor in Sonoma County, right. whitewashing animal cruelty, looking at these just absolutely yeah. horrific animal cruelty reports by his own vet, by, by the state's by own the Sonoma's, vet. Yeah, Sonoma's yeah not, not our vet, but, but yeah. even by their own vet. That's why that case is such an important case to me, or one of yeah. the many reasons. And still says, you know, I'm going to charge the people exposed. I this. can't believe that. It just yeah. boggles my but, mind. But the, yeah. I think th the reason he's doing that is because he's trapped yeah. by the system. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he strikes me as like a pretty good dude. 
reasonably good dude. I mean, you're looking at me kind of funny. <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree. John's like, what? I'm sure we can, I, we can sit down. This with is him somebody and, who's like charged with as many felonies for the record. I mean, but I, think I, he's a I reached dude. out. To, well, v, yeah. via my attorney, I reached out to have a conversation with Bob. Like, let's sit down and talk. And I'm, I'm sure we could have a nice discussion. And I think we would probably agree on many things too. Yeah. Here's what I mean. I, so the reason I think yeah. he's a pretty good dude, and I don't want to go too much into the details because this is still active litigation. And my lawyer yeah. may call me and yell at me for saying this is I don't want to say why, but I think he's demonstrated openness that other prosecutors have not. So even by prosecutorial standards, he's done things differently than a lot of prosecutors in terms of just basic fairness and decency. I'd say similar things about Jason Hayes, frankly, not, not actually in court as much, but just in his general openness. And I think openness is not something you see in a lot of prosecutors because they've got tunnel vision that my goal is to convict. But I, I think that is what's trapping him that he it's not always just financial incentives that trap people. It's just this sense that the people in my community will not accept me. And, and frankly, yeah. this is the the big struggle Lucas Walker, the whistleblower at ISF faces. It's like financially, I mean, I guess to some extent he cares because he was working at ISF, but they, it's not like they pay the he workers that job. well. He, the job was a terrible job. Same is true of a lot of the workers. Probably true of the other person you're talking mm-hmm. about who has worked at a pig farm and you've developed a relationship with and you know other people have assisted us with this. But I think what traps people more than the financial incentives is just this way of life community thing where they yeah. feel like their standing in the community will disappear. And this is what holds people back from activism too. Even vegans, a lot of them are, are environmentalists. You know, they think, ah, do I really want to be the person who's locking down on a pipeline? You know, and do I want to be out there at Standing Rock? Or do you even want to be there mm-hmm. seen as publicly supporting this? And, and it's a funny thing because once there is a sufficient critical mass that it becomes normalized that you can support for example standing rock right, right? then, then everyone's on board and everyone's like yay standing rock even barack obama's like right so brave these mm, activists yeah. and, and it's just everybody's on board and you saw the same with gay marriage you know like mm. you've got the defensive marriage act passing you've got barack obama in 2008 saying gay marriage is wrong and i'm not supportive of that and then suddenly like four to five years later yeah. saying oh i was wrong and it's it's not my view is evolving oh, okay but it, it isn't right. it's 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 about this trap people are in that they're trapped, but with Barack Obama on gay marriage, with some of the folks who are, right. you know, not supportive of direct action in the environmental movement until Standing Rock, it, it is because they didn't see a way forward other yeah. than the path they had. True. That's what they were trapped by. Yeah. And I think Bob Weiner, Joe Coro, I don't know Joe Coro that well, but I, I imagine yeah. it's the same situation where he feels he doesn't. You might even know it because honestly, the most dangerous trap is the trap you don't know you're in. That is the most dangerous trap because at least if you know it, and this is ironically, it's this guy, Marty Seligman at University of Pennsylvania. It's ironic because I just talked to a bunch of his colleagues and I just reached out to him to see if he'd be willing to talk to me because, and he's very controversial within the animal rights movement. This is a psychologist who did the experiments on learned helplessness back in, I think the 1970s. Do you know about these experiments? Yeah. The dogs. It's like awful experiments where they put dogs in these chambers where on one side of the chamber, there was a metal floor that would cause them to go through an electric shock. And the other side there would mm-hmm. be floor that there were two treatments, two, two, two groups in the experiment. In one group, the medical shock, the, me- the electric shock happened on both sides and the dogs developed what's called learned helplessness. They just realized wherever the hell I go, I'm fucked. Right. So I, I might as well give up. And they just like sit there and yelp and cry every time they were shocked. And then there was another group that if they chose the right side, they'd be able to escape the shock. And those dogs kept fighting and they kept fighting and they kept fighting. But the dogs that were taught in the early stages, like they'd go through 10 or so shocks 
and quickly learn they there's nothing to be done. Yeah, exactly. They become defeated yeah. and they just give up. And I think this is kind of where the human species is right now. Yeah. Like we are all in a state of learned helplessness. We've been taught that the government, these powerful corporations, even our broader community around us, even when it's doing fucked up things, there's nothing we can do to get out of that. Yeah. So the best we can do is ask for cage-free eggs or ask for, you know, let's, let's pollute a little less than the environment and cause a, a small number or fewer in, endangered species and extinct species. Instead of saying, no, let's just go to the other side of the fucking cage. It's, it's right. just, no one's going to get shocked at all. And we're in that state right now. Like, it would be so easy. I mean, whether it comes to electric batteries and cars, you know, we talked about this during the campaign, and both of these guys were on the campaign. I, one of the shocking things to me about Berkeley is that even in Berkeley, the solutions to the climate crisis are so astonishingly simple. Oh, God. So astonishingly simple. Like, not that much money. Let's tax the big corporations just like 1% to 2%. We can literally fund every person in this entire city's transition to carbon neutrality in 10 years or less. Oh, and Just tax the corporations a little bit. So it's a very simple, yeah. like, just take from the people who don't even need the money anymore. They're, like, wasting it on yachts. Like, Jeff Bezos literally just bought a $300 million super yacht. It's a yacht inside of a yacht. Does he need a nice. yacht inside well, of a good yacht? for Jeff. So does wow. Jeff need a yacht inside of his yacht I'm more than we need life? Yeah. What is more important for the and, future of this yeah. planet? Life or the yacht inside of the yacht? Let's pick life. Let's pick the continuing existence of our species and the millions of other species. Actually, billions of species if you include you know, invertebrates and all the other animals, but even just vertebrate species. Sure. You know, I think it's, it's just such an easy choice, but we don't see it as possible. And we just say like there's no choice. In Berkeley, you know, the uh, you know, presumptive progressive leader, you know, whatever, this hub of progressivism historically in the U.S. or at least you know, the past 50 years or whatever, um, the solutions that they do come up with, absent our pressure, are things like turning off, they'll name specific buildings within the city, like, oh, we should turn the lights off and not have them on overnight so we're not wasting energy, and we should put Crisis averted. a few more, yeah. We've done it, everyone. <laughs> put up, put up, lights a, are off. Put up a few more signs to direct traffic to where parking is at so they don't end up circling the block uh, and wasting some extra extra gas, Ooh, so that I is- I could use that. That is your- uh, uh, hashtag bold progressive leadership. That is incrementalism at its worst. At its that is most incrementalism at its worst. And this is this is why we need something bigger and bolder. Because yeah. it's when you are in a moment of crisis, and we are in a moment of crisis right now across the entire planet. And again, the animals already in crisis. In many ways, the crisis for the human species is just unfolding now. We're seeing the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the power outages, extreme weather. For the other animals of this planet, it's already been in crisis. Half measures just don't work. I'm not saying, you know, like there's some incremental things you have to do to get to the ultimate solution. But when your house is burning down, you don't say, oh, like I'll move a little closer to the exit. Mm -hmm. You say, let's get out of the house. The house is burning down. We need to get out of the house and build a new house because the house is burning down. Yeah, totally. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of the like the people that we're talking about, they didn't create the situations that we're in. Like Jill Ravitch, you know, Bob Wainer, they didn't build these factory farms. They didn't build these slaughterhouses. You know, frankly, even like Mike Weber, like he's just doing what prior generations exactly. have, have done, right? He, there's just this whole like... Mike Weber's the owner of Sunrise Farms, a massive yeah, yeah, exactly. egg factory farm that we get arrested for doing civil disobedience. Or not even right. civil disobedience, just for doing a rescue act. Right. And like the, the, the person who owns... McCoy, um, 
I mean, there, we're just we've got this legacy from prior generations that we're kind of stuck with, yeah. and I think that's why. But that's why activism is important. Is it like we have to like? I think it's important for them too because like they're stuck in this system that is killing all of us. So we've got to like find a way out together. And I think that there's kind of we all sort of bear some responsibility for fixing the system too, not simply identifying what's wrong with it. But I, but I think pro, but prosecutors like factory farmers like they need to be willing participants in getting us out of this system. And like, but in, in some cases though, I think people are not stuck. Like Janice McCannis, Sean Reyes, like the state, the attorney general in Utah, they did not need to get involved with the Smithfield case, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah, there was to. already a county district attorney, Vaughn Christensen, who's working on this. And I imagine Vaughn has prosecuted murderers mm-hmm. and arson. I don't know exactly, but I, I have to imagine that he's seen really bad stuff. And you're telling me his office couldn't handle a case of two missing rescued piglets, piglets. and they had to bring in like the top attorney in the state of Utah to help yeah. with this prosecution. And the FBI. I know they even tried to talk to the U.S. attorney to get them involved. And they were, and they were like, uh, no thanks. But, like, they did not need to get involved. So that, like, we need to be pretty hard on them. I think the reason they reached out, I, I don't, did you, did, we actually heard why he reached out. And uh-huh. it's because they thought this case would be too hard without the support of the entire prosecutorial establishment. Oh, totally. Two, and, two and piglets, I two dying it's, piglets. It's not a legal, oh, my God. It's, it's not a legal difficulty. I think they realized how politically fraught this is. Right. Which, which tells you, again, that you're not on, when you, when you feel strong in your position, Mm-hmm. just intellectually, ethically, you know, philosophically, then you don't feel like you need a massive amount of support. So like if I'm trying to convince the world, this chair is a real chair, you know, this chair I'm sitting on, I, I don't need to like call in the greatest philosophers and right. cognitive scientists and physicists in the world to prove this chair. Cause I'm sitting on a chair. I hope you believe yeah, me because totally. it's, it's here. You know, I don't, I don't need to, we don't need this big argument. And so they bring in all these big guns and bring in all this big money because they feel weak. And we're willing to fight even though we got nothing because we know we're standing on a strong position. Right. I, I forget. What was the communication that indicated that that was their I don't position? remember how I know this and I'm, hopefully I'm not breaching some sort of trust. But yeah, I heard through the grapevine. Huh. You, okay. you probably, John was originally actually defending this case yeah. but got out of the case. But at some point I heard that the local county attorney, Von Christensen, felt they didn't have the resources to actually prosecute this case themselves. So they reached out to the FBI, the state attorney general. And you were right that the state attorney general and the FBI had to make a choice and say, you know, we've got all these crimes in this country. We've got, you know, mass murders and all these things that are happening. And, uh, and we're going to decide to invest probably at least millions of dollars. I'd say, I'd say at this point, prosecuting these activists who took two sick baby pigs out of a factory farm. Yeah. That is a choice they made. Yeah. So I want to ask two follow-up questions about the situation with your family. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is, have you talked to your family about this? I guess you never talked to your dad about his history prosecuting. Yeah, my my dad passed away in March of 2015, and I only found out about, I only really read about the Trone case in end of last year. It was actually, I was doing this research like, well, I think it was like a year ago or so. But um, yeah, I have, have I talked to... I don't. So you know, never talked to your dad about. it? I never sure. talked to my dad about this. Never knew that he was he was involved. Did you know he prosecuted activists? Because I knew you. No. You knew that he prosecuted people for doing drugs. Yes, yeah, I knew. But, I knew well, he about was against the, the, um, the drug legalization effort. Yeah, I keep calling you, it Department of Health v. Smith, but it was uh, Employment Division v. Smith. Okay. That was the peyote case. But you didn't know he was prosecuting activists when he was Attorney General. No. Huh. No. 
Yeah. And have you talked to your mom, your brother, anyone we, else in your family? I've talked to my, I don't know that we've talked about the ALF. We, I, I think we, yeah, we probably just mentioned it in casual conversation. I think my mom was like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Huh. But I have, I have talked a lot. Wait, wait, can you just, I'm just curious. I mean, if you're willing yeah, to yeah. share. What sure. Did, what, why was it interesting? And what was her reaction? Cause I'm just, I'm really interested to see how, cause you can see the change the world can go through by seeing the change families go through. <laughs> right. Seriously. Like I see that yeah. my own dad, my dad was vivisector. Now he donates to animal rights groups. You know, he's an amazing dude. Yeah. But like how did your mom react? Was, was it positive? Was it negative? Was it like, I'm oh. glad he did what he did. Or it's like, Oh man, that doesn't seem like the best prosecution. Oh, well I, I love my mom. I, but I sometimes just kind of pontificate about my various theories and she's just like, Oh, okay. You know, that's, that's, that's nice. I think it was kind of one of those, oh, those of more ones. situations okay. so really where he was just like pat on the back. Yes. Keep, keep pontificating. <laughs> keep thinking, son. So, <laughs> keep thinking, I don't know son. that she was super invested in the, you know, in the underlying ideas one way or Another, but I mean, I think in general, my mom would probably agree with that now. I mean, I think she's... That was a mistake. Yeah. 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 I think my, yeah, my mom is very much on board with animal yeah. liberation, well, increasingly on board with animal liberation. I think in large part because of our Smithfield investigation, yeah, it was a powerful seeing investigation. those wrote, like she's, she tells all of her friends, she shares the intercept, like Glenn Greenwald's intercept pieces. But it, for her, it's like the photos, just seeing mm-hmm. like crate after crate after crate. Yeah. I, I thought about that again last night. I had this dream last night that I was like stuck inside this tunnel and I felt all this claustrophobia, hmm. like, oh, I can't get out. And I was like, oh my God, like there, this is, there, what happens to like millions of pigs like and that's their whole life like just feeling that claustrophobia it's disgusting it's got to end it's got to end it's so bad yeah you can't overstate how bad it is and that's what janice mccannis and sean rays are enabling they're actively making it possible so but again that's a problem for them but again but anyway so was john's own father yes this is why we have to recognize this is a collective problem and true and i will say you didn't get a chance to talk to your dad about this and i think you shared with me you didn't have the best conversations at some points with True. your dad. But I'm like, True. I had very good conversations with him. And huh. I think, wow, I yeah. told John, I think part of what might have happened with you and your dad, who is, I mean, part, he's, he's a brilliant guy and really just a powerful human being. I mean, mm-hmm. he's one of these human beings, just his physical presence was very powerful. Yeah. I'm not even saying because he was like the largest man, just, mm-hmm. I mean, he was fairly tall, and but it's not like he was like, look like sure, a linebacker sure. or something, but he had a presence to him. I, I was surprised because when I, when I came in your house and met him for the first time, I knew about his background mm-hmm. and he was a Republican and he was attorney general. He'd been president of Oregon, the university of Oregon. And I was not expecting to have like a good conversation about something huh. as quote unquote radicals animal rights. And I had an amazing conversation with him wow. like over breakfast one morning at your house. And yeah. it was like when I came into Portland for resistance ecology uh-huh. and I was staying at your house and, and, he was super open to it and just asked like a lot of really probing <laughs> questions and was just intensely curious about all aspects of the philosophy and just validated everything I said. And it might've just been, that's amazing. I didn't, it could have been just, he was being nice to a guest, but that's not the feel I got. The feel yeah. I got from him was this makes sense. Wow. Everything you're saying makes sense. And I'm with you. That's so amazing. I, it's so fascinating what happens when you kind of take the baggage away yeah, from, from like in like a, an inter a family relationship where yeah. you know there's like history and conflict. But when you take that all away and you just talk about the yeah. ideas, you can get a totally different no, I picture. Had a very good take so that's really cool. It is cool. So my second question, then I'm going to ask Matt. Yeah. You know what, what? How you're feeling about this year, this make or break year, as I put it? Um, is have you thought about reaching out to Mr. Trone? You know, I should do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's, a, that's a good idea. I, I don't know how. Did I, he go to prison? I, I honestly don't know because the whole case was 
the the briefs that I read were just all about the um, whether the necessity defense was going to be used, and the the Oregon Supreme Court decided against it, wow. and then they uh, they did a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied, not surprisingly. Um, and then I tried to find out. I just googled like kind of what happened, and I don't know. I don't. I assume it got you know, which is it went back to the trial court and and there was a trial, but I don't know what actually happened. So should reach out to him. I should. I absolutely should. That would blow his mind to see the son of the yeah. guy who put him in prison. Fuck you're right. Yeah, saying, I need to do that. I'm being charged now too. Yeah. That 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 is a sign of the Americans you know yeah. the change that American go through. That if the, the prosecutor put me in prison, his son is now in solidarity with me, facing criminal charges himself. Totally. That would blow his mind. And that, and yeah. probably like if I were in his position because the, the reality is so many of these people have been crushed yeah. by that experience. I mean, I've got friends who've gone to prison and it's been crushing. Yeah. To know that, hey, maybe I didn't accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish. At a minimum, you still save those animals' lives, you know, so you should always yeah. be happy about that. But maybe I didn't accomplish everything. But the fact that the, the guy who prosecuted me, yeah. his son is now an animal rights activist, hey, that's a victory. Yeah, totally. Like, I won this one. Totally. Even if I lost in court, at the end of the day, I won where it matters okay. most, which All is... Right. In the court well, of public opinion. I, I can take an action item to, Should do to try it. and reach out. I will say I did talk with Nuren, who was the general, who was kind of the, the head attorney of of like Rajneesh Param mm-hmm. and, and kind of worked directly with Osho. And we had, he had, he had, he's a super interesting, really lovely person. And he was, he does like meditation retreats now. And so this is a separate issue. This, for is, the totally se- this is totally separate issue. This but- is, and for the record, John's saying some controversial things about this that I don't necessarily. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I mean, we, we like could, John, we, John is not to- happy with his dad in a lot of ways, but this is a Netflix series called wild, wild country that you should go watch. But it's, I, I, John's I, dad I'm also not- prosecuted those, those people. And they're, I, we, we did, they we did, actually we, did. Unlike Roger Trone, at least what I know yeah. about Roger Trone, the Rajneeshis actually did use violence, which Correct. is not okay. Correct. They they got a bunch of people sick. They got they, 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 they used salmonella. People, yeah, they had a bioweapons lab and everything. Up and, not okay. and I mean, we 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 to ha- we could ha- talk for a long time about the that whole saga. And I think there are a lot of like important nuances that we'd have but to talk about. But they're very different from the Animal Rights Act. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that yeah. the Animal Rights Act was never used those sorts yeah. of attacks. No, I just brought it up. I, I just brought yeah. it up. Okay, to, I just want to, to establish there is that, a big difference between. And you could say that there were fucked up things about that prosecution too, but it is a very different prosecution totally. when people are being poisoned. Yeah, yeah. I, then I, when someone's liberating an animal from a cage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, go yeah, ahead. No, I just totally. want to make sure. Well, no, I, I just brought it up to point out like that yep. I've, I've, I, you talked I, to I, Ryan, I like yeah. reaching solidarity with people who are in, in that position. And I actually really also would like to reach out to the, the members of the, the tribe that, mm. um, that was doing peyote ceremonies yeah. that, um, that, were, that got shut down by the state of Oregon, too. Yeah. And they came, you said they came to your dad's funeral, right? Uh, one, one of them did. One of them spoke. Yeah, yeah one at a memorial service for my dad. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, you should reach out to Trump. Yeah. Find yeah, I, I, mean, I will. I'm I, I'm guessing he's a friend of a friend. And it, it's the '80s, so it's a long time for me. I mean, this is when we were kids. Yeah. Or actually, you might not have been born yet. When, yeah. when, what year was it? Do you 80, know what? Uh, I think that it was like '86 to '88 or something, or '86 okay, so to '89. So you were just born. Yeah. And um, I I was like seven. Yeah, exactly. Like they, seven or eight years they, old. But maybe. they were they were like in touch with PETA. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they. Um, when they lost their writ of certiorari, I think they they reached they sent a letter to Peta saying, unfortunately, this is the yeah. Outcome. So Ingrid and Jeff probably know about this guy. Yeah, probably. Could, you could you just talk to Jeff. You could call him up and yeah. ask him, do you know this guy Roger Trone? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. That is pretty wild. It's a sign of it's a wild change, It's a wild wild country we live in. Huh? Wild wild country. <laughs> That's a great series, by the way. Like I, if you haven't seen that yeah. series, go watch it, and you'll hear about. 
the the other reason it's not just that they poison people, but John, if anyone on this planet is is entitled to not be upset about this, but they also had John's dad on their hit list. They were planning to assassinate John's father. That's true, and they left. So John's sympathy for the Rajneeshis is an extraordinary act of compassion and understanding. Because if someone tried to murder my father, I would probably be a little less understanding but yeah and and john's a nice guy it's a, the thing is it's an organization and yeah. like there there is a very diverse set of viewpoints within the rajneesh cult about, about murdering your was, dad among other things yes <laughs> yeah and I, I don't think very i probably I, it was probably just a handful at most people who even Sheila. knew about that well and it's funny because like she i think sheila. sheila was asked in there was a they, there was a follow-up documentary where she went back to india huh. and did like a speaking tour and somebody asked her about the bioweapons lab, and she denied knowing about it, huh. which is a little hard for me to believe, frankly. But uh, I like to ta- I like to take people at their word, yeah. so I don't know. But it, it, it was a diverse group, and like they were like obviously, I t- you have to disagree with things. Like they armed themselves, and like they yeah. were acting very belligerently. And I mean, they were kind of a cult. Like I mean, they they were a cult. Like they mm-hmm. there was one person ultimately who was like making the decisions, and like you can't have an organization based on that. There has to be like there has to be accountability, uh, and there wasn't. But I do, I like the fact that they were trying to infuse spirituality into capitalism. That was kind of the basis of what they were trying to do. And I think that, that if, if that had been done, this would be a better world. If there yeah. was more sense of unity and people weren't just trying to make money for the sake of making money. Anyway, we could talk. Anyways, we yeah, could, we could talk about that all day. And honestly, it is a fascinating documentary. So I encourage you to watch the series, yeah. and then you can reach out to John if you have additional questions because it's it's a fascinating story. You, I, I think you were going to reach out to Sheila too, right? Did you ever do that? Uh we, we thought about that. Yeah, I yeah, think she's should. living in Switzerland, but yeah, yeah. it'd be interesting. All right, Manny. So how are you feeling? It's all all the feelings in every direction. I think. So. Yeah, there's ready for this. So much uh, knowing. I think I'm as ready as I'm gonna be. Um, yeah, I mean it's a, a feeling of peace. I think with the feeling like we're kind of like positioned, reasonably speaking, like as well as we can be to, um, you know, make something of it. Uh, kind of whatever the outcome uh, is. So it'll be scary and sad and lonely and boring and all the things if if i'm sitting in a cell for a long time uh but um this is uh what we were you know in some respect kind of what we were going towards or at least kind of a necessary you know presumably a necessary step towards the evolution of what we're trying to do here so folks may not even necessarily know everything about the charges you're facing because We did a podcast back in September, I think it was. Something like that. Because we thought Matt was going to trial in October, and then things got delayed to January 20th. So this podcast should be coming out on January 11th. The plan is, hopefully this has actually come to fruition. The plan Mm -hmm. is to release this on January 11th, a week and a couple days before the trial starts. So just tell people, I mean, what, what's going on on January 20th? I mean, what, what are you being charged for and what is, what is the context? Uh-huh. And I've instructed Matt, there's some details, because I am his attorney, in addition to a podcast <laughs> yeah. host where he's talking. I've instructed him not to talk too much about the details of the specific case until trial. You'll have to wait until trial to hear those yeah. details. But just tell us about the broader backdrop mm. and how you ended up facing these, this felony charge in, in Wright County, Iowa. So this was in relation to a... Uh, 
four-week investigation that I was involved with that um, uh, was uh, that began uh, based on a tip from a uh, whistleblower, a truck driver at the time for Iowa Select Farms. His name is Lucas Walker. He's now uh, public uh, public about that. And he contacted us, uh, actually originally he contacted, uh, he reached out to DXC because he had seen a prior investigation that I did that um, exposed the conditions inside a factory pig farm owned by um, Iowa State Senator Ken Rosenboom, who's Mr. Aggag as far as uh, the legislation being passed or that has historically been passed and continues to be in Iowa. Um, so he saw this prior investigation, which are laws that criminalize the act of investigating a farm. Yeah. So for yeah. those of you who don't know what an ag gag law is. Yep. So yeah. agricultural gag, ag gag for, you know, <laughs> whether there's different flavors, uh, which we've now seen new and more interesting flavors, but, uh, whether it's photography or you can't, um, get a job as an undercover investigator or, um, more recently when, what I've, the law that was now passed because of my actions and then subsequently used to charge me. And what I'm facing trial on one of the charges um, is regarding um, agricultural trespass. They just drastically increase the consequences for a supposed trespass that happens in, in an agricultural context. But let me sort of back up and try and give you the full, uh, full background here. Um, so the investigation of the Senator happened. Uh, Lucas Walker, the truck driver for Iowa select farm sees it and uh, says, you know, like, well, those are, bad conditions there's a lot of crowding with those pigs and they they had some um vaginal and anal prolapses really bad shape he contacts us and he's like yeah that's pretty bad but what's happening here on a regular basis at iowa select farms which is the fourth largest pork producer in the country um what's routine there is far worse uh he was specifically referring to their um quote unquote double stocking which is you know putting twice as many pigs as you're legally permitted to in a space and and let me just you can imagine back it. up and explain what a vaginal or rectal prolapse is. I mean, some of the stuff that Matt found at Senator Rosenboom's farm had animals whose internal organs were popping out in these bloody gaping messes. Yeah. You know, because they were so violently misused by the constant forcible artificial insemination from the constant <laughs> impregnation and reproduction cycle that their internal organs are coming out. So Lucas Walker sees this shit, which I almost, I mean, I feel like this is going to be like boycott and veganism where I tell people don't go look for it and they're probably going to look for it. But I honestly just think it is kind of, Mm -hmm. it it does like legitimately cause trauma for some people to see this. He saw that and he said to you, he wrote to you saying, you think that's bad? Yeah. They got nothing on ISF. Yeah. That's how bad he was seeing things at ISF because overcrowding is not just about overcrowding. Overcrowding is about the trampling that happens, the disease that happens, the dead and dying and decomposing animals in the facility because of overcrowding. And he was saying they were using twice as many animals than were permitted by law. And 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 we're talking about the law in Iowa. So you can Which imagine is not what the a good standards law. Are, are to begin with. Yeah. What would the standards be like in Iowa to begin with? They're doing, you know, in, in many cases, tw- double, you know, twice as many pigs as they're allowed to have in a space. Um, and, um, you know, he kind of followed the same protocols for escalating direct action as we do in a sense, because he tried to solve this problem within the system. Nobody in the company cared. Nobody at the Iowa department of natural resources cared when he tried to get enforcement. And so as a last resort, you have this factory farming truck driver doing the unthinkable you would think, uh, which is contacting animal rights. Not just a truck driver. He has pigs. 
Yeah, when he, he raises and kills pigs in his own home. Right, right. Like he has animals. So this is it like is. a pig farmer right. reaching out to animal rights activists for help. Right. It's amazing. And so kind of goes with the principle that like sometimes the people you think are like your biggest enemies, enemies are actually, actually your most yeah because they're closest to the problem. Right. They yeah. understand how bad it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. We learned a lot from him. Yeah. Um, Lucas is an amazing guy. So yeah, yeah. I mean, really? he's he's fucking friends. He's you know, a hero. I mean, I definitely. Yeah. Uh, he's a hero. Um. So. Okay, so so he contacts us. He says the conditions are, are really bad here. I don't know what else to do. So I'm called going to you guys. Maybe you guys can do something about it. We're engaging in a conversation and kind of, you know, not too sure what we're going to do with this. Then right then, you know, and this is last spring, COVID hits and um, we have these these outbreaks. We talked about, you know, Wayne mentioned the four, you know, how the, the outbreaks at slaughterhouses in particular or, you know, meatpacking plants. Uh, and so... One of the main, you know, obvious consequences of that is when these places are shutting down, they have nowhere to send the pigs and they're still breeding them up just the same as ever. And, you know, in Iowa Select Farms case, you know, far beyond the legal limit. So there's really got nowhere to send these pigs. Um, and so let's, the- let's just explain that further, because most people aren't going to understand that it's it's not just that the animals were so densely packed that there are twice as many than there should have been when animals go to slaughter. They're at about 250 pounds, typically. It's six months. They're babies. Mm-hmm. They're juvenile animals. A full-size adult pig can be six, 700, 800 pounds. Yep. And they will continue growing over time if they can't be sent to slaughter, right? So if you're already double-packing the animals, there's twice as many as there should be, and they're now going to grow two to three times larger, suddenly that trampling problem I'm talking about becomes yep. massively worse. Right, right, and this is what Lucas Walker is seeing unfold at ISF. Yeah, and at at, at the the slaughterhouses too. You know, just in terms of, you know, business <laughs> from a cold business perspective, it's their infrastructure within a slaughterhouse is set up for pigs of a certain size, like the tunnels and the machinery and the so on. So, you know, from yeah. a, you know, setting aside animal interests as they obviously do, um, from a business perspective, they had this huge problem, and so, um, you know, the. Uh, a corporation doing what corporations do and just uh, looking out for the bottom line. Uh, cheapest way to solve this problem they came up with was this, um, you know, just uh, just unconscionable. I mean, really, you know, that's what I thought about it when I first heard it. And, you know, as somebody who's pretty um, entrenched in this stuff, uh, what they call this uh, mass killing technique, ventilation shutdown, um, loading uh, hundreds or more often thousands of pigs into industrial sheds where they have sealed off the um, air vents and any any sort of uh, doorways or anything where air can escape. And then they pump in heat, they pump in steam. And um, over a course of a few weeks, it took us a little while to get it right. Sorry. It took us a little while too, to get that, uh, to do it uh, properly, but eventually we were able to um, record this. And so we captured the video and audio of this happening um, with Lucas's assistance and, um, we brought it to the world. Glenn Greenwald, uh, did a long feature piece in it, uh, back when he was still with the intercept and, um, a ton of good local media too. And, the Des uh, register, the associated press yeah. all wrote really good stories about this. Yep. All completely supportive. Of yeah. The efforts yeah. That yeah overwhelming. Made. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, then less than 24 hours after that story comes out, I comes, you know, I came out on like a, was it a Friday afternoon? And then that, that following morning, uh, around 5 AM, my hotel room is raided. Um, and, uh, I'm arrested, hauled off to, uh, to, to, uh, Wright County where part of the investigation that we did of, of Iowa Select Farms happened. And so, um, wait, can you just tell us more about that raid? You might've actually shared with this 
about this in the, the prior podcast we did, but how many cops were there? And how, what did they say? Like, what did they do? Um, so yeah. they're knocking on the so door I, and then... Well, well, one thing that they said that was interesting was uh, they were very concerned that I might be on meth. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, I, I do so have a prescription for Adderall, fellow. So okay. it's not... It, it, it's just... Funny. It's, Which is basically it's math, right? It, yeah, it kind of. Uh, it's so you like, actually were on math. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they weren't concerned you were on math. You actually no. I'm kidding, uh, yeah. Um, so okay. So for the so, record, it's they, a legitimate use of the drug. Yep. You know, full yeah. Prescription. ADD or something like that. You know. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for sharing some of your vulnerability, Matt. I oh, I appreciate I, it. I share my superpowers. The. <laughs> 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 uh, Okay, so that so the piece comes out doing all the media stuff, whatnot, staying in his hotel. Oh, wait, room. I, I want to hear more about the cops, though. So, like, no, okay, oh, you're yeah, telling me. Okay, and actually, Scott Gilbertson, my uh, uh, good old Scotty. Yeah, he was very involved in this this process uh, all the way through. He was there as well. So anyway, we go to bed, five a.m. There's this. Yeah. This housekeeper at the Super 8 was very dedicated. She was going to give, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, hear, I'm hearing loud banging on the door and I don't know what time it is, but I, but it's just like, no, we're good. Yeah. We're good. We don't need anything. No towels. <laughs> Go away. Go away. Bang, 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 bang. She's just like, what the fuck? You know, and didn't register in my head, you know, five in the morning. So, you know, didn't look in the people or nothing. I just like opened it up and Have like. Have you not listened to anything I've shared with you over the last wow. five years, my friend? You didn't, you didn't register this as a raid? Anyway, I, uh, yeah. So, um, anywho, yeah, you, you I'm just kidding. I don't blame him. When you're delirious and it's 5 a.m., it's oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in my underwear. Uh, yeah. It was it was a glorious, yeah, thing. So anyway, yeah, they I mean they got their hands on me like whatever right away. You know this because I'm sure those police officers didn't hear. There was no like this is like open rescue. This is principled nonviolence or whatever. They're just like burglary. This guy's on the run. We got to get him, you know, felony type of, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have guns out. That was good, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they were, they were serious about, they were handling their business. Um, and so how many we, cops were there? Um, I think three. Three. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, you know, right away they, so less grabbed, than they sent to chase after baby Lily. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's kind of ironic that they sent three after the activists and I think it was eight or nine after the baby. Wow. Yeah. Pig. There might've been more outside. Um, okay. Yeah. It was, um, I don't know. So anyway, they, they, you know, grabbed, they were pretty sure who I was or whatever. They're like asking my name and I'm like half asleep and I'm like trying to think like, okay, I don't really want to give them any information. <laughs> like, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? And I just mm-hmm. like, I am Matt Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> they they let you put like, pants on, right? Yeah, that, that actually, we, you know, made that happen. And uh, I'm like yelling and like, Scotty, do not. I, I was a little <laughs> intense. It's like, do not tell them anything. Your name, your address, that's it. Or your date yeah. of birth, like whatever. The, you know, just like, do not give them. So you know, you know, what the, what's so going to be. So I'll just give people a little legal advice that I don't know if Iowa is a name and ID state. There are some states where if an officer ask you for your name and ID based on some reasonable suspicion that a crime has been committed, you'd have a legal obligation to give that at least your name and ID. Yeah. I don't know if I was one of those states. And even if you're in a state like California that doesn't have a name and ID statute, sometimes it's still advisable to do that. Yeah. But I would definitely say, even for just some routine criminal issue, whatever it is, I mean, someone's alleging you trespass on their property or you jaywalk, don't talk to the cops. Right. Don't talk to the cops. Right. Like, it's just not smart. And I've done it a couple of times, so everyone has the impulse to do it. But still, don't do it. Until give yourself, especially when you're something like this. You're you're in your hotel room at 5 a.m. in your underwear and you're a little delirious because you just got woken up. Definitely don't talk to the cops then, because mm-hmm. you have no idea 
when what you say might be used against you. So you're doing right. the right thing and telling Scotty, don't talk to the cops. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, get my pants on. So that was nice. And there, uh, and then, and then it was the, and the, you know, they're, I don't know, they were just like, ask, I don't even remember the specific questions too much. Cause it was just like, whatever. I'm like, no questions. Was it Barry Hudipal himself who was there? No, no, it was just um, some random deputy. It was, it was Polk County because we were in Des Moines. Ah, so, was, uh, so you weren't in Wright. Right. And then we got transported up. Yeah. That's so right I, right. I went and sat in Polk County. This is actually really interesting because this is when, um, it was right after George Floyd got murdered and there was all the, you know, across the country, you're seeing all this. And so I was held in Polk County jail for, for a few hours until they could figure out my transportation to Wright County. And it was a bunch of Black Lives Matter activists. Oh, that's cool. Too. And I'm just like, I really would like to talk to these people because it's like all protested. I'm like, which one of these motherfuckers is a plant, you know, yeah. just waiting for it. Yeah. Nobody, in, well, nobody no initiated knew. a conversation yeah. with me at all. So it wasn't, wasn't that exciting as yeah. far as nothing like that happening. I'm you could talk sure. about general philosophical stuff, you know, you can't, yeah. you don't want to talk about the facts of your case, but if you want to talk about movement strategy and solidarity, well, you know, I, it's, you know. it's, 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 we're, it's we're talking about five in the morning. I'm not yeah, trying no, to for sure. philosophize. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for the record, it, you're better off not talking in jail than taking the risk if you can't be very careful. So as a general matter, you want to stay as far away from the facts of your case. And mm -hmm. a lot of lawyers would just tell you, don't talk about anything related to activism. If you want to yeah. talk about, you know, the weather or what are you planning to do over the Christmas holiday? Fine. But yeah. No, it was, I, I was just was thinking that it's, I mean, in Polk County, it's like the jail is just like overflowing with people who are like overwhelmingly like, there for like noble reasons, yeah. you know, uh, you know, kid, I don't know exactly what all these individuals did, but anywho, uh, so I'm there, you know, they're asking questions and of course you're not supposed to answer questions. So I'm not, you know, I just keep repeating, not answer questions, not answer questions, not answer questions. Uh, uh, have you been using methamphetamines? Not answering questions. Um, sir, <laughs> uh, you know, cause I was, uh, I guess I, I was sweating and like my eyes were dilated, uh, big, you know, which is cause it's like a dark room and, uh, and from actually having Adderall and I knew I didn't even want to like clarify for them. Like, Oh, Adderall, I have a prescription, like whatever. I just sit. And so anyway, ambulance ends up showing up and then I'm like, okay, Whoa. maybe I should, I should say a few things. I'm like, you do not have my consent to touch me. I'm going to be fine. I'm okay. That's what I said. And then, and then the, uh, the paramedic guy says like, well, we can't do anything here, but if he passes out, then, then we can do something, you know, because <laughs> he's anyway, it's just a funny, like they were good faith trying to help me and it was hmm. unnecessary. So, uh, anyway, uh, so get transported up to Wright County and, um, I mean, actually like the Wright County situation getting released out of there. I mean, this is, there's, so much of this, it was just wild. So I'm held in Wright County for 24 hours, and I, you know, I told them I'm going on a hunger strike. I'm not going to eat anything. I'm not going to sign any condition of release. I'm not going to pay any bail until um, at the time what we were trying to demand was uh, for Kim Reynolds, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, to, um, what was it, an independent investigation is what we were calling yeah. for into ventilation shutdown. Um, and so they went from you know raiding my hotel room, telling me we have a $5,000 bail, and um, that that's what I'm going to be held on. And then I, as far as I understand, and maybe the legal people can help me here, like nobody ever gets released without like signing a condition of release. Like yeah, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. So anyways, the next morning, yeah, none of that, that Ray, I don't know, we raided your hotel, the $5,000 bail, that's gone. And uh, yeah, you don't have to sign anything. You are kicked out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, <laughs> do I, like, what will they do if I don't leave jail? what are they going to do? Throw me in jail? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what, what, what comes next? Yeah. How, where does this lead? Uh, so anyway, I don't know. I 
I, I complied with their kicking me out of jail. Uh, and then like, as soon as that happens, that is correct. By the way, I've never heard of something like that happening where yeah. they just release you without you having to sign anything or concede any conditions of release. Or if they initially set bail and you, I, it just doesn't happen. And it, I think it hundred percent was because of the media attention. Yeah. Which is another reason why if you're listening to this podcast, or you're supporting us in social media, understand that you've got power. Yeah. Like we need you, you know, the animals need you, but Matt needs you too, because you know, Matt might've sat in jail starving. If not, I mean, maybe that's what you, in some ways, I mean, I don't think we would have preferred it. Obviously we want you to eat, but, and not be in jail, but it, it's pretty astonishing yeah. how much power that has when there's media attention that puts pressure on an institution that's acting badly. Yeah. And then when they came to me with some good, uh, or, uh, you know, good looking, uh, they were bringing me like the meals of, you know, trying to make the most Delicious dead animal males. sandwiches. You know, they just show up yeah. right there. They're like, Oh, here you go. I'm like, and there's, Wow. No, nothing to it. Just, you know, they make it just quick and easy. Just don't take it. Like, whatever. Yeah. Like, That's bro. hardcore, my friend. That's uh, hardcore. So, you know, I mean, there's so many details here. I don't know if we want to fill up too much time with this. But uh, so, you know, I get released, get a hold of Scotty. He comes down, pick, drives back down from, from Minnesota, uh, where he, because that's where he lives. He went back there, came pick me up. As soon as he gets there, then we find out from. How many so, days were you in jail? Uh, like one day. Just one day. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, Shortest hunger strike ever. Yeah, they, they didn't want me in there. That was basically a one-day fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, did, so it didn't turn out to be as uh, dramatic as it could have been. But as soon as we get out, we hear from Lucas that now that they are, they're going to do VSD again because they still have this this whole problem, and they think, oh well, he's locked up. We later got audio, so they were thinking they're going, they kind of like got rid of the problem. Like, okay, we made our point. He's in yeah, jail. He's they don't know jail. how long I'm going to be in jail. Now they're free to go back and keep doing it again. So immediately, as soon as he picks me up, it's like no time to mess around. We got, we drive across, we go back to the same facility in Grundy County and we have Scotty and we have other people. There's so many people that are involved with this. We're so awesome. Um, Cheyenne Holiday, I don't know if she's listening to this, uh, is, is a, an activist in, uh, in Iowa, in Fairfield, Iowa, and then her partner, Justin uh, Jeske, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Anyway, they start coming up there, and within just a matter of hours, we go and we bought the chains, we bought the locks, we got like the spotlight, and we have them three locking down at this facility because they were going to, it was going to happen again. You know, they were going to bring thousands of pigs again and just roast them alive, right? Because they thought that they had done away with this temporary, you know, little gnat of a problem of us. And, you know, we all were very committed that was not going to happen. And so they locked down, they chained themselves to the fence where they where the trucks drive through to bring these pigs in. So they're and, just blocking the truck from getting into the facility. Yeah. Well, okay. we, yeah. And then the trucks, the trucks just never came yeah, you know, because as, as planned because they knew we were there. Um, and so we were there. I mean, end up being a eight hour live stream and uh, there are various opinions about the uh, use of powerful language or, <laughs> but it, it were, I mean, it was, it was a success. I mean, thousands of pigs. Yeah, we're, we we're have a very alive. good indication that that was going to happen that night. And that is, you know, I think we open <laughs> probably opened some people's eyes up about the um, commitment of the animal rights movement and what people are, are capable of doing because they thought they had, they had this problem was done with and they can, you know, deal with their backlog of animals. Um, and eventually, you know, they it turned out that that was the last time that they ever did ventilation shutdown. Um, and or so, tried to because um, they didn't actually do or, it that night. Right? Well, or yeah, excuse me. The time that we caught, the time that we recorded was the last time that they ever actually did it. Okay. Um, and they were in the process of retrofitting a second barn. So they were ramping up their capacity to do a whole lot more of this. Um, and through our, you know, and there were other protests. People got arrested at uh, doing civil disobedience at uh, Jeff Hansen, the company CEO's house. And after that happened in the media is when they announced that they that they were um, 
not doing the tactic anymore. And then through conversations, I actually talked to, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't say his name right now, upper management who actually was fired at Iowa select farms. Um, just because he disagreed with VSD, which is a whole other level wow. of fucked upness. Um, but I had a very quick exchange with him on Facebook and he said that, um, yeah, that what we did was the last time they ever did it. What we got on tape was the last time they ever did it. So, uh, anyway, I could go out all day. But there's so much to, to say here, but that's kind of what brought us here. And Cheyenne was charged, but they ultimately dismissed the charges against her for locking down. I'm actually not super supportive of locking down as a tactic for the most part, but this is one of the cases where I was pretty supportive. Yeah. I thought that it was the right thing to do, that it was strategically wise. I mean, it's always the right thing to do in the sense that I should clarify what I meant by I'm not supportive. I am supportive of pretty much all types of nonviolent activism when human beings or animals are being harmed and, and killed and slaughtered and tortured. I don't think lockdowns are strategically wise for the most part. This is a case where I think it was very strategically wise mm. for people mm. to change themselves to the fence. Um, and I think the proof is in the pudding. It had actually stopped the practice. And it, as you said, it was the last time that they actually did ventilation shutdown. But um, now you're being charged in a separate county mm. for an investigation. Again, I don't think we need to talk in the details, but this trial is unfolding on January 20th. And this is part of the investigation because you're hearing from Lucas, there's all these awful things happening in another farm. There's an allegation that you're moved to pig and we named this pig Gilly, or I should say, you know, the team that rescued her, but uh, really no, it's it all Lucas's us. wife named the pig Gilly. Are we allowed to say that? I, <laughs> oh. I only said it. Uh. Like, uh, well, I mean, I, I, there's nothing illegal about naming a pig. So, yeah. you know, she, she, if she named the pig, she named the pig. Um, and we're going to trial on January 20th. And, you know, it's, it's technically a burglary charge. But the reality is we know 100% of the reason this case was brought. Because mm -hmm. the only reason they're ever going to charge anybody for taking a sick and dying animal from a factory farm, when oh. they dispose of nationwide, it is tens of millions Probably. I mean, this is the industry's own estimates. Tens of millions of baby pigs that are sick and dying are thrown in the garbage every single year. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. the only reason it's every barn there's like a dumpster outside. Full of, oh, we've we seen this. We've all seen this. Yeah, we photographed. Yeah, it. I mean, it's you so have before. photos. So they're it, not just the animals. All the animals were going to be slaughtered at these facilities, anyways, and thrown away because of ventilation shutdown or you know disposal of the animals from farrowing crates. They're trying to stop the mothers from breeding. They're killing all the babies because there's no reason to keep producing animals when all the slaughterhouses shut down. So these animals have no economic value. In fact, it's a disposal problem for the entire industry. And mm. in, in, in Matt is being charged for taking one of these, and not even just one of these animals that was healthy, but a sick and dying animal, an animal mm. that was already suffering, yeah. already suffering, yeah. not being charged with a felony. And I should, I mean, maybe like a slight clarification maybe is like, you know, at some point, you know, the... the Slaughterhouses opened up, and some of those animals probably were some of the animals that were in that facility probably were killed and sold for food at some point. So I, you know, I don't think they were all to, to be disposed of every animal in that facility, but certainly this this little piglet. Um, and they were changing their protocols around um, killing piglets. Where you know normally a piglet that has a meaning you know some sort of injury or illness, they'll they'll kill them. If it's something really minor, maybe they try to like nurse them back to health or whatever. In this moment. You know, they were, uh, the standard was basically piglets, you know, when we heard this through, uh, through people who worked there, uh, was pi piglets that are not perfect are being killed. And Gilly was sure, sure as heck in, in that category. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to, to give you the, the authority and the, the site for why I said tens of millions, 
there's a program called the Pork Checkoff Program that is run in partnership with the pork industry, the National Pork Association, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And they do a lot of the kind of cross-industry research and marketing just to promote the industry itself, which is its whole own fiasco because the idea that the government is in collaboration with the pig industry or the pork killing industry or the pig killing industry is it's ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. But they they circulate statistics just industry-wide about mortality at at nurseries. And the latest figures that I've seen were showing something like 20%, and it's been increasing over time. I doubt that. Last statistic I saw was like 2019, and pork checkoff actually has taken this down, but they had industry-wide statistics showing it was like 18 19% and increasing over time. And one of the reasons, I don't know where you heard that. I'd like to see the statistic, but this is Crystal, by the way. He just interjected, but mm-hmm. Crystal's a vet, so she definitely has a basis for this. But the pork checkoff program, circa 2019, 2018, was still citing a figure of 18 or 19%. It had been increasing over time. And one of the reasons is because of that overcrowding problem, mm-hmm. because they're trying to stuff more and more pigs in a smaller amount of space. And even the, the mothers are giving birth to more piglets because they're selectively breeding the bombs. And so they're sometimes more piglets and there are places for the piglets to nurse. And yep. I mean, some animals starve to death. Yeah. 2018 study says 11.2% That probably is in the sample they're looking at though. Well, pork checkoff is looking at an industry-wide. Yeah. Pork checkoff is a national industry-wide program that is looking at the entire industry as a whole. So there are a lot of studies that will look at mortality at one particular farm. Anyways, we can side check this later, but for regardless of whether it's 14%, 11%, 18%, there are at least millions and probably tens of millions because I think there are like 140 million or so piglets or pigs killed every year. If 20%, 18% of them are dying, that means 20 million every single year. Yeah. For taking one of these pigs to a veterinarian in a sanctuary, Matt's being charged with a felony, which is it's yeah. unconscionable to me. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, and it's uh, you know, they look at, uh, you know, they're, they're selectively choosing what, what charges to bring. So, yeah, they like you said, they didn't... Um, uh, they dropped the charges that were against uh, Cheyenne uh, right before trial because she wanted to go to trial. We wanted to hear that out. Like, okay, let's hear you defend your actions about what was going on with that situation where she where she had that locked out. You know, yeah, they didn't want to go to trial on that. I faced um, two trespass charges in relation to the Grundy County uh, facility and, and various things we did there, trespassing on that site um, where recorded ventilation shut down. Yeah, they dropped all of those charges. And you can see from a prosecutor's perspective that if something is a little more tangential it is you know it's part of this overall investigation of iowa select farms and their whole inner workings and their supply chain etc um but it's not directly related to ventilation shutdown so that's going to be the charge that they can get away with and sort of like what john was talking about earlier you get into the court of law and you just like you know remove all the context of it and that's what they're certainly trying to do is to just make it like oh why did you just go barging in this facility and taking a pig like what the hell that's ridiculous you know that sort of thing. So, you know, they're picking and choosing part of it and telling you, you know, the, you know, the part of the story that they think is going to be palatable, but it's, um, you know, by the time you, there's just no, I mean, I, I literally don't come across anybody that I can talk to for, you know, even two minutes to explain the situation that is not just like, what the fuck? And, you know, yeah. very much respect for, for us and, and what we're doing. So it's, you know, there's a lot of like hope in that and a lot of, you know, frustration that we can still have like this system where like everybody knows that it's all like we're all kind of looking around like this ain't right. This is not OK. Every, you know, even the 
prosecutors, like the experience you have and, you know, with the conversation, John, like everybody at all, like, I, I feel like I could sit down with, you know, I don't know, maybe Jeff Hansen, like literally the CEO, like, is that maybe like one exception, but there's so many people that, I mean, even within the industry, obviously got your Lucas Walkers and types that just, yeah, gosh, everybody is on our side. Like, I almost just, think Jeff Hansen would be an easier sell because I feel like a lot of times the C-suite executive types are so removed from it that when they actually are exposed to it, this is mm -hmm. kind of like John Mackey. I mean, I kind of, John Mackey is a CEO of Whole Foods and, you know, I mean, part of the reason I think John Mackey wasn't persuaded was not because by our investigations was not because the footage wasn't horrible, but because he was so removed from it and he had, he had bought into it so much what they were doing that he just didn't believe it was true. You know, but mm -hmm. if we actually could show John Mackey or Jeff Hansen, Jeff Hansen had to be there listening to the pig scream as they're being roasted to death, yeah. even he probably would have moved. But what's hardest is to convince the people who are inoculated, who are doing it in their daily practice, because there's a lot of evidence showing that people become very insensitive to that sort of empathy when they mm -hmm. are, are forced to essentially well, immunize well, themselves. And what's interesting with, with, with ventilation shutdown was that it was, because it it's a you know, horribly cruel thing, uh, but it was novel. And so the people that were doing it, you know, they didn't, because it takes a little time to be, it takes, it takes time for people to become inoculated. You know, the first time you yeah. see something horrifying and tragic, like you respond, like it's horrifying and tragic. Um, cause we had conversations with, um, you know, right after we got this ventilation shutdown video, we went there on site and, uh, myself and, and Linda Cridge, who actually is also facing, well, similar charges in Wright County and, uh, may, may, might be considering a plea deal. Uh, anyways, uh, Sorry, I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here, but right after we got the video of ventilation shutdown, we went on the site um, where that happened while they were still loading up these pigs. And we talked to the workers there and they were, you know, you know, they've been instructed to watch out for activists and how to handle whatever. So they were like plenty spooked by our presence there, which is understandable and, you know, unfortunate. But they also were saying, you know, they definitely we're saying things that were, you know, like they thought this is horrible. He's like, yeah, this is, this is shitty. We don't want to be doing this either. You know, that sort of a thing too. So, you know, and probably if they had to do it day after day after day, you got to find some sort of like psychological coping mechanism to tell you, you know, to get through it. Um, so, uh, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of, I don't know. There's a lot of people that are on our side. We just got to figure out how to harness it. Yeah. So let's do it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else can people do to help? I mean, we're going to trial a week in two days or three days, I guess, 13 days from the day this podcast is going to be released. I mean, what do you want people to do to show solidarity with you and with the animals we were trying to save? And we did save a lot yeah. of them. Well, well, there's still, still be a little bit of time. You got you know, the last minute flights uh, out there to Iowa. It's, uh, that's, that's an option. We got, um, it'll be at least dozens, you know, probably in the vicinity, like 50 people or so that I think will be around for, uh, for, for court support and, uh, community outreach and, and, uh, some demonstrations, uh, that sort of thing. So we're, uh, making a big mobilization out of it. So that would be, um, right there on the face of it. Um, definitely follow, uh, what we're up to on, um, social media and so on direct action everywhere, uh, Facebook, Twitter, all, all the things, um, sign up for our email list, uh, that's on our website, directactioneverywhere.com. Um, but, uh, yeah, just find some way to, to, to get active. That, that really is, is the thing. And, and social media is, is a form of, of getting active and, and speaking up. Um, but if you're at a place in time to do something in person, that's fantastic. Uh, on a whole other subject, if you're in the same community as a bunch of activists, uh, like at a place like Berkeley, 
you have probably exponentially more power. So to not to dive too far into that one, but if you really want to change your life and really make a maximal impact, I think moving to uh, a place like Berkeley is a way to go. Um, but uh, I don't know. Get get involved. That's the quick answer. Yeah, the, I think the more general point is the more strongly connected the movement is to itself. You know, the, this is Doug McAdams' paper that I've talked about a number of times in this podcast about activism and strong social ties, that when you have a strong social tie to someone, you become 80% more likely to participate in activism. And, and that's true not just about the participation decision, but the commitment decision, the effectiveness dimension of your activism, everything gets amplified the more connected you are to other mm -hmm. activists. And there is a lot of evidence that geographic proximity, this is why, I mean, we live in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Yep. The reason all these tech companies, have everyone come here is because there's something special about having this concentration of techies all in the same physical space. Yep. There's like these massive, powerful, positive feedback loops. It's kind of like the speaker into microphone phenomenon yeah. where it just amplifies itself and it becomes almost deafening to the entire world eventually. Yep. You can do that with a social movement too, but that depends on the connections. And I, I will say one of the things that has been pretty tremendous about this investigation that you and your team, that really we all did together, because I see the entire movement, all of our supporters doing this together, is the fact that so many different animal rights organizations have jumped on board. And, mm -hmm. and, and there's, some, there's some downsides of that, you know, and we've talked about them a little bit, that a lot of big nonprofit organizations that have jumped on board and, you know, they haven't been so supportive of us on the front end, but on the back end, they're happy to use the work. And I think there is yeah. a lot to be said about those organizations trying to contribute more on the front end and acknowledge the efforts and the risks taken by people like you. And, and frankly, there's a moral dimension to this problem. I don't think it's okay for a big nonprofit organization to utilize the narratives that you've amplified when you're facing prison time and right. they haven't contributed even a dime. You know, yeah, or, yeah. or even like a, a, a word on their own social media in defense of the activists and the employee. You know, yeah. that they're, they're, there are people who took big risks here, huge risks. Mm -hmm. And it hits me right in the soul yeah. when I see groups trying to exploit that yeah. and not showing support for the activists. And, it's, and while there is an ethical dimension to it, it's also about what's best for the movement in the long term. Because if we do not support the people are risking everything, risking everything, to expose these things, these things will not be exposed yeah. and the entire movement suffers. So I don't want to name names. <laughs> if you're out there listening to this and you're part of one of these big nonprofit organizations that are utilizing the work that Matt and Lucas did, and, and Lucas himself was investigated by the FBI, he, face, he faces potential charges for this. Yep. You need to show them some support in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. You need to do it. It's yeah. the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do for the movement. So, yeah. but notwithstanding all that, I will say it's still good. And I'm still glad these groups are using the footage, using the narratives, using the media coverage we generated, that you generated and Lucas generated, because it's a moment for the movement together. And movements of all stripes need to come together to become powerful. So let's keep working together. Amen. Let's all do right. it, man. So any last thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. Just stay plugged in. Uh, stay, stay, uh, stay with us through kind of, kind of whatever happens. I think that it's it's going to be a roller coaster ride. Of course, maybe you know, maybe we get an acquittal would be amazing. Maybe I go to prison. Maybe I don't. But if we're all, you know, engaged in this together and keep talking and communicating and then trying to do the right thing, like every one of these things, you know, fail forward as as uh, lose Evan forward. 
Lose four. That's what it was. Phil okay. forward is same, good too. Phil forward actually sounds better. Yeah, there you go. Because it's yeah, because it's it's yeah, it's alliteration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, lose forward is an important concept. The idea behind that is, even when you lose, if you fall forward, it actually it actually can build progress or movement. And the gay rights movement, as Evan talked about in the podcast we did a few weeks ago with him, did this repeatedly. They lost in court so many times, and in many ways, what might have felt like a devastating loss in the short term was a stepping stone to victory. You know, because you got to try. You learn things from the trial, from the trials. You you make progress by by convincing some people in the media. If you didn't persuade the jurors or the judge in a particular court case, yeah, you get media attention that persuades the next judge down the line. Yeah. and maybe most importantly, you mobilize a movement behind you. Yeah, right. And so that's where all the folks listening to this podcast can play a role. That if we're going to lose forward, it's going to depend on you stepping up. The other concept I think people should be familiar with in the context of trials like this is what I've called asymmetric stakes, which is to say a quote unquote loss in court does not actually cost the animal rights movement or justice that much because it is just the status quo. It's another in a long line of cases that holds that animals are just things people can do even the most God awful, disgusting, brutal things to animals. And it's still okay, especially a business, especially a powerful business. Mm-hmm. So loss is just the same old, same old while it win is revolutionary yeah it, it shakes the foundations of the entire industry because it shows a jury of our peers even in rural iowa yep. even in rural iowa believes that animals are not things and that people have the right to rescue these creatures from a corporation right goosebumps <laughs> so we'll get but, there but regardless you know and and again it, it, even the downside of the loss it's not just that the there's not a lot we lose if there is a prison sentence and we tell the story, if there's media attention talking about how absurd it is that someone exposed these cruelties, that a worker was working with him to expose these cruelties, and now they're sitting in a prison cell, that narrative is a foundation upon which we can build to win the next court case. Yep. That narrative depends on the people listening to this podcast and all of us together because you know, we don't have a big advertising budget. We're not like Whole Foods or ISF. We can't, we can't donate a million dollars to Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, and get her to talk about this issue. We can't. Yep make a $10 million ad buy in the New York Times or CNN or on Facebook. We depend on ordinary people and, and their individual decisions of conscience to share this story. So share it. We need it. Matt needs it. The animals need it. Amen. All right. Anything else? That's it. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks, everybody. Appreciate you listening. And um, stay tuned because in one week and three days, the trial starts. And I hope you're there with us. Thanks, everyone. I want to thank Matt and John for joining me. It was intense and illuminating conversation. We had a lot of fun with it too. And I hope you all follow this trial that's coming up in, on January 20th because, as I said at the start of this, we, we need your help. But I also want to thank some of the folks who've helped out with this podcast. Priya Sahani, who's editing this podcast as I speak. You're amazing, Priya. I love you. And couldn't do this without you. Uh, my buddy and co-founder of DXC, Ronnie Rose, who has in many ways been the driving force behind the, this podcast. And then a team behind the scenes, including Shalil Fakis, who does all the social media, Julie Waldrop, who helps out with the website, and Crystal Heath, who gives me tons of great feedback and also does a lot of the audiograms, those short audio snippets you sometimes hear on social media. Finally, thanks to all of you. You're all amazing. And if we are going to make progress in this trial and other issues facing the world today, it's going to be because we do it together. And if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to support these efforts to make change, then please share this podcast with a friend. I'll see you next time.